Sir Sidney Poitier. For nearly a century, Sir Sidney Poitier lived and worked in the United States, an actor who consciously, intentionally sought and refused roles based upon the portrayal of black people. If the roles were demeaning or offensive, he passed on them. If the roles were enlightening or the character could be played with dignity, he took them. Born to parents from the Bahamas during a vacation in the U.S., Poitier, who spent years working in his father's tomato farm on the island, came to America, fell in love with the stage, and experienced his first hard knock when he was denied study at the American Negro Theater because of his heavy Bahamian accent. Poitier didn't despair. He practiced speaking in an American accent for months, reapplied, and gained acceptance to the company. Before long, the stage became the screen, where he left an indelible mark. In 1951, he made Cry, the Beloved Country, a British-made film set in apartheid-era South Africa. In 1958, he co-starred in The Defiant Ones, with Tony Curtis portraying two prison escapees fighting to survive despite being shackled together. In 1967, he played in a series of films which addressed the racist nature of the times. As a teacher in To Sir With Love, as a police detective in In the Heat of the Night, and as part of an interracial marriage in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. At a time when such marriages were illegal in several dozen states. Poitier won an Oscar for Best Actor for his performance in Lilies of the Field, 1964, a rare honor for a black actor then and now. Poitier, in a 1967 interview, made the following observations. I've learned that I must find positive outlets for anger, or it will destroy me. There is a certain anger. It reaches such intensity that to express it fully would require homicidal rage, self-destructive, destroy the world rage, and its flame burns because the world is so unjust. Sir Sidney, what he gained. In the 90s, Poitier played Nelson Mandela in a made-for-TV movie. Mandela was imprisoned when it was screened in South Africa and said it gave him hope. Mandela also saw Poitier in In the Heat of the Night. But what he didn't know until he left prison was that the South African censors had cut out Poitier's scene of slapping a white man who had struck him. Sir Sidney Poitier, who I enjoyed in the film he both starred in alongside Harry Belafonte and Ruby Dee and directed the Western, Buck and the Preacher, 1972, about ex-slaves fleeing the South to find freedom out West. Poitier lived 94 summers as a man who turned rage into art. He was father to six daughters and husband to two wives, alas, 
retired actress Joanna Shimkus, born in Canada. Sidney Poitier lived a life of love, not fear. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. Thank you. That's uh, something that you see in how we celebrate life and uh, how we even deal with death. A jazz funeral is a ceremony. You bring the body out to the grave and you play slow hymns and dirges. The traditional dirges like, Near my God to thee, flee as a bird. And that's the mourning part. You give into your grief and you know that you won't see him again, but you just were happy to know who they were and be a part of their life. And then they say some words over the deceased out at the burial site. And then you start to play the up-tempo, happy songs. You play a parade from there. And that's the celebratory part. It's the, it's the whole yin and the yang of the beginning and the end. Because, yeah, I'm sad you're gone, but damn, it sure was nice to know you. COVID-19's death toll in the United States keeps climbing. That number today is over 837,000. This has meant a lot of business for funeral homes over the last two years. But this doesn't mean funeral homes are making more money because many Americans went without costly burials, opting for less expensive cremations. This translates to a change in death rituals, especially in black communities, which have been hit especially hard by the pandemic. Stephen Kemp directs Kemp Funeral Home in South Michigan. He joins us now. Hello. Good morning. I gather that your community and your funeral home has been through a lot during the pandemic. Can, can you tell me about your experience these past two years? Sure, absolutely. It actually started in March of 2020. I'm just north of Detroit to give people a kind of geographic area. It's kind of a melting pot of, of minority families that live in multi-generational homes. So really ravished our community and the infrastructure, namely filing of death certificates, getting cremation permits, getting people cremated or even buried made it even more difficult. The courts had closed, the vital statistics departments had closed, the morgues were overrun uh, and understaffed because of COVID. So what are things like now? Things are a little better in terms of we now have the vaccine. So we I'm still seeing an uptick because it's Omicron variation, uh, but not as much as it was in 2020. I was surprised when I heard business isn't booming necessarily for the industry because people are going with cremations as opposed to burials. I do see cremation growing because uh, financially it makes a whole lot of sense. We really, because of the pandemic, we really weren't prepared with insurances and with the proper amount of money to do that. And cemeteries have increased their prices uh, really, really um, disproportionately to the inflation rate. For, you know, for, for African-Americans, for like my grandmother, my big mom would go to funerals. It was almost like a social occasion, like her and her sister, they went to funerals like every week. Like there were all these rituals. You go around to see the family. There was the repast where you had the food. That is very different now, though. 
Sure, you're expressing really what was, and uh, in terms of historically going to churches, we that is way down, way, way down. So you're beginning to see a lot more funerals here at the funeral home versus traditional places like a church. What I tell people, you didn't go to church your whole life. Why are you trying to have a traditional funeral now if you've never seen the inside of a damn church? Excuse my language. And what is now, we have them in parks and tents, Mm -hmm. in people's homes, Mm -hmm. in the backyards. Mm -hmm. And what traditionally Mm -hmm. has been the funeral has evolved into more of a celebration of life. I tell people, get pictures together, put them on a flash drive, play the person's favorite music. Uh, Even, (laughs) you know, we've had Tupac. Okay, Um, Bury me a G? What? No. In terms of now in the repast, what we were doing during the pandemic is I was catering um, boxes. Uh, If you remember Mm, on the civil rights, uh, when we were on the buses or trains, when they didn't serve us, we had lunch boxes. Lunch boxes, Well, a local African-American restaurant here, Seoul Restaurant, makes a box with historic indications on the outside and giving people the history of what we did. We serve those on the way out. So people take your box with you, take your takeout with mm-hmm. you, take your mm-hmm. juice and go on, and we, we all still celebrate. And, you know, people didn't turn that down. Are there less people at the services now? Like, is it mostly just family? You know, I see a huge increase of people on mm-hmm. the Zoom because, number you know, for, for obvious reasons, I don't have to travel. If I'm in Atlanta or out of the country, I can watch the entire funeral. Actually, I can participate I've had, you know, ministers give their eulogy uh, from their home office. I have a 75-inch big screen that I have on a trolley that I play, and they're standing there giving the eulogy. Um, the funeral business is not like any other business in, in, in the terms of you adapting to the consumer's needs, if you're going to survive. Because it's so personal. Very, very personal. Uh, and I think that's probably, you know, what I said is the last bastion of African-American or minority business. We still su- support one another in, in that industry because of our historical ties from the civil rights era. The funeral director was always the one yeah. that had the car and drove the civil rights person around. Even going back to post-Civil War era, typically white funeral directors took care of us. But they always put us in the basement. They always put us in the back room. The funerals weren't scheduled there. And then African-Americans decided to enter the business as well in Birmingham, in Selma, in those areas that uh, where they needed to march. What I always tell people is, who do you think paid um, the bail for those civil rights <laughs> leaders who got put in jail for no reason down there? It was always the funeral director. The clandestine meetings that needed to be held without infiltration were typically held in what? A lot of people don't, funeral homes. As you say, your business has to evolve, but yet there's a heart to it. What are you doing to to foster that for, you know, future generations? So I'm trying to give that to the younger generations. Monthly here, we do a seminar and we talk about Medicare and Medicaid spend downs and planning for long-term care because people spend some or lose a lot of their generational wealth because of long-term care because nursing homes can cost six, $7,000 a month and it depletes a senior's savings in no time. Now, does that have a lot to do with our business? I think it does, but mostly is to help our community. And I think that's one of the things that we've got to maintain, and we, we, we still going to do it to, even in the younger generation, in my son's generation. 
Stephen Kemp, mortician and director of Kemp Funeral Home in Southfield, Michigan. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. The Olympics got underway. Simone Biles was like, hey, I ain't okay. Take care of your mental space. Anyone with school-aged children knows the last week has been really rough. Thousands of schools around the country have shifted to remote learning, and those staying open are dealing with students and staff out sick, the burden of testing and masking, and everything it takes to stay open during the midst of a pandemic. We're going to spend the next several minutes now talking about how this moment and the last two years of disruption have affected the mental health and development of children. NPR health correspondent Ritu Chatterjee and NPR education correspondent Anya Kamenetz are here with us to talk us through all of this. Hey to both of you. Hi. Hello. Hey, Anya. So I want to start with you. Can you just walk us through what we know at this point about how kids have been learning? Yeah. So on the school side, you know, all the data we have says that children didn't learn as much when they were home. Uh, the impacts have been very unequal, both by race and by class. Um, also want to call it students with disabilities um, that they've been quite um, severely affected. And some of the longest lasting impacts may actually be in high school students, those who went into the workforce and may never return to their education. Wow. Well, Ritu, turning to you, how would you say kids have been doing emotionally the last two years? So the bottom line, Elsa, is that kids are struggling. Not every kid, but the number of kids with mental health symptoms has increased since the pandemic started, and it's just gotten worse with time. So CDC data shows that even early on in the pandemic, when people were afraid to go to a hospital for fear of catching COVID, hospital ERs began to see a proportionately larger number of kids coming to their emergency rooms for mental health needs. And the situation has continued to worsen. Child psychologists, psychiatrists, children's hospitals, even pediatricians, they're all seeing this. Um, I spoke with the president-elect of the American Academy of Pediatrics, Dr. Sandy Chung. She and her colleagues did a survey of pediatricians in Virginia, where she's located, about their experiences with this. And here's what she said. 88% of our pediatricians reported seeing an increase over the last few months, um, really since the beginning of the pandemic, of the number of children with mental health issues. It's been quite dramatic. And the kinds of symptoms they're seeing sort of span a range, more depression, anxiety, more kids and more younger kids struggling with serious suicidal ideation and attempts, kids with aggression, oppositional behaviors, and also a rise in eating disorders. And we do, I mean, what is what is different about this point in the pandemic that that is especially having an effect on children's mental health? Well, the main thing is, Elsa, we're two years into this pandemic, right? Or yeah. almost two years. And there is still a lot of uncertainty, stress, instability. And kids have been struggling since the beginning of the pandemic. Some kids who had mental health diagnoses before the pandemic, who weren't able to get care, worsen. Then there are kids who developed symptoms for the first time, who also weren't able to get care in a timely manner, and over time have just worsened. And we know, um, and then you take into account that more than 175,000 children have lost a parent or primary caregiver to COVID-19, and we're still seeing deaths go up. And so we're talking about a huge number of children with like major childhood traumas. 
And um, I spoke with Dr. Vera Foyer, a child and adolescent psychiatrist at Cohen's Children's Medical Center in Long Island. And here's something else she said. Another basic cornerstone of of, uh, childhood development is what do they see around them and how are the adults behaving? And we know that adults are struggling as well, right? And so it's no surprise that kids are too. Absolutely. Well, Anya, what are you hearing from educators as to what they're seeing? So, you know, I just want to make this personal for a second. My daughter, who's a kindergartner, she has no memories of life before coronavirus or of going to any schools without masks. And so this has really gone on a long time. And some anecdotes from around the country, we're seeing children that have regressed. So a fifth grader playing alone with a doll at recess instead of with their peers um, a high school students um, cutting class and hiding in the bathroom because they don't know how to be in class. They've had social anxiety. There's reports of more physical fights. Um, and I spoke to Kenita Ballard, who teaches sixth grade in Jefferson County, Kentucky. We have students who are stressed. We have teachers who are stressed. We have families who are stressed. On top of that, we have behaviors that are spiraling out of that stress um, that's manifesting like trauma. So generally, instead of this school year being a dedicated year of recovery, as we'd hoped, schools have stayed in crisis mode almost continuously and including in this current surge. Well, what we've been talking about mostly is what people are seeing in the immediate. But but Ritu, what are you hearing about whether this will have a long term impact on kids? Yeah, and that's a question I've been asking a lot of child and adolescent psychiatrists, and they say that we don't know because it's still happening. But what long-term research, uh, years of research actually into childhood traumas tells us is that the death of a parent, food insecurity, addiction, violence in the home, these kinds of traumas in childhood increase the risk of long-term physical and mental health problems. Now, I should clarify that not every child has suffered or suffered to the same extent. For example, kids in communities of color have been affected disproportionately just because of the disproportionate impact on their communities. But as Dr. Sandy Chung tells me, uh, the whole situation, it's not one that she considers completely hopeless. The good news is that children are resilient and that with, you know, everyone coming together and focusing on um, working to improve this and to provide those supports now, I, I think there there is hope. And I think that's something that everybody's realizing and um you know, trying to address. And the other good thing that's come out of the pandemic is that this mental health crisis in kids has gained more recognition nationally. Uh, You might remember the Surgeon General's advisory on youth mental health that he put out last month. And there have been um, some uh, federal dollars um, invested in addressing access to mental health care. Um, There's still a lot to be done, but as psychiatrists I've spoken to say, it's a really good start. Hmm. Well, how about that, Anya? Is there anything else that we have learned from this pandemic that can be applied in years to come well after this pandemic's over? So I really share Ritu's optimism or the idea that the new focus on these issues may bring um, good changes. As an education reporter, as a mother, I know the essential services that schools provide, not only socially, educationally, sometimes food and heat. And so more and more the country now is noticing all of this and all the things that schools do. And so the question now is, is our country willing to do what it takes to make sure the schools stay open, even if that means maybe closing other things and giving schools what they need to stay open safely? Yeah. 
That is NPR's Anya Kamenetz and Ritu Chatterjee. Thanks to both of you. Thank you, Elsa. Thank you. And one more play for the Georgia defense. Georgia on the mountaintop. Demons be gone and the drought is over. National champions at long last. The title of Mary Frances Early's new memoir, The Quiet Trailblazer, acknowledges that her name may not be famous. Nevertheless, her role in the civil rights movement is monumental. Mary Frances Early was the first black graduate of the University of Georgia, and she joins us now via phone to talk about her memoir. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. I am honored to be here. You write that you earned your graduate degree in music education at the University of Georgia in one of the most violent decades of our nation's history. How did you get there? Well, it's almost unbelievable because I was such a quiet person and I had always been a good student because my brother and I uh, had wonderful counsel from our parents, love and respect, and they taught us to to believe in ourselves and to do the best that we could because they didn't have the opportunity to go to college. And so they wanted us to, whatever the length of our potential was, they wanted us to reach it. And so they laid a good foundation. I call it roots. Well, the way I got there was I, I begin my autobiography talking about my childhood experiences because my formative years actually led me to becoming a civil rights activist. And I've been called an unlikely candidate because I was fairly quiet. I, I liked to talk, but I was not one who would, would be in the front line of a civil rights movement, but I wanted to be. And I was in my fourth year of teaching and uh, saw on the television, little black and white television with my mom, we were watching the evening news, I saw the riot that was happening at the University of Georgia, and we were horrified. I had known Charlene and Hamilton because the three of us actually went to Turner High School, which was the premier high school in Atlanta. This is Charlene Hunter, later Charlene Hunter-Galt, and Hamilton Holmes. Yes. I was so horrified that I had been going to, since I had finished college, after my first year of teaching, I went to Interlochen, which is a national music camp, because they had a division of the University of Michigan. And the following two summers, 59 and 60, I went to the University of Michigan. But I decided on that night when they were suspended, I said, that's not right. They can't do that. I'm going to transfer to the University of Georgia. And my mother looked at me and she said, are you sure? We just saw a riot there. It's too dangerous. And then she told me for the first time about the murders of four black people in Monroe, which was her hometown. She had never told me this before. And it was a horrific murder. And she said, that's why you shouldn't go, because it's dangerous. And I said, Mom, that happened 10 years ago. I was 10 years old when it happened. But I have to be on the active line. I have to do something about this, because 
these Jim Crow laws are not going to go away. And I can help. I can go to school. I can't march on the line with students, but I can go to school. And so I want to do it. And she finally gave me her her blessings. I can imagine how terrified she must have felt for you. In spite of the Jim Crow laws, your parents never taught you to hate, dislike, or disrespect white people. How difficult was that for you when experiencing indignity such as you write about attending a movie at the Fox Theater as a young girl with your brother? It was very difficult because I was young and I didn't understand why we had to drink the colored water and not the white water. I didn't see why because the water wasn't colored anyway. (laughs) I didn't understand why we couldn't go in the front door of the Fox Theater and why we had to climb up all the stairs. But they drilled that into us that it was the laws that we should hate and not people. Mm. Well, that takes a tremendous amount of grace, I think, although it is remarkable that you did not want to return to the Fox Theater for decades. And in fact, it was a performance by the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater that finally got you to go back to the Fox in the proper entrance, I might add. Yes. I was so happy to be able to do that. And I have been, of course, several times since. But I was really into my adulthood before I went back because that that just meant to me that we were not accepted. We were less than, and I didn't believe that because I'd been told by my parents that I was as good as anyone as long as I had the potential to do whatever. And so when I went back and saw the Alvin Ailey dance troupe, that was just, oh, it was such a blessing because at that time they had several different ethnicities, people dancing uh, before then, and it started out as an all-black troupe. But it was so inspirational, and it gave me hope for the future. Hmm. And they have returned here, with the exception of 2020, every year since 1976. I, I know they consider Atlanta their second home. Yes. So you came from this wonderfully loving family, parents who instilled in you and your brother the importance of education from a very young age. Let's go back to some of those earlier years. Would you tell us about the beginning of your intellectual awakening with Ethiopia at the Bar of Justice? Yes. When I was growing up, my dad had a restaurant on Auburn Avenue, and it was right across the street from the Auburn Branch Library. And I went there every day. They paid me to stay out of the way. And I went there and I read and I read. (laughs) And I thought that was a great way to make money. Yeah. But I couldn't read a lot about history. I mean, I read black history. I read and read. And I guess I should say Negro history because that's what we were called then. But when our seventh grade teacher introduced Ethiopia at the Bar of Justice, She didn't tell us that the opposition was a white race and Ethiopia was the black. We had to get that knowledge ourselves. But Ethiopia 
was told by opposition that she had done nothing to make America great. And then uh, I was playing the part of Mercy in the pageant, and I was the defense. And I called all of these people to sing the praises of Ethiopia, business, the church, women, the slaves, all of the people in the, the various wars, the 14th, 15th, and 16th Amendment. And that brought it all together for me. And I thought, oh, my God, we have contributed to America. And I, I was just so proud. It, it made a big impact on my life. How did attending Clark College help prepare you for your career? Clark College was a wonderful. I'm so glad that I went to an HBCU. I had gotten scholarships, offered scholarships at Spelman and at Smith College, but I didn't want to go to Smith because it was too far away. Plus, both Smith and Spelman were all female. I wanted a co-ed education. And I went to Clark because my band director had taken me there as a senior, and I played with the band, and I was so proud that I could play the clarinet uh, with the band. And I decided that was where I wanted to go, and it was a wonderful choice because I received a stellar education there. (laughs) Now, you write about visiting New York City, experiences such as being a counselor at a summer camp in the New York area and taking graduate classes from the University of Michigan. You mentioned earlier when you would go up to Interlochen And these accounts not only convey what rich experiences they provided you, but how liberating it was for you, Mary Frances, to be accepted as an equal among white people. You were surrounded by fellow music lovers, campers, camp counselors. It made me wonder why you didn't want to remain in the North. Why did you choose to stay in the South? I wanted to stay in the South because I was born in Atlanta. I was not a person who came from another place. I wanted to stay in the South because I wanted to see it get to the point where we could have could be on equal basis. I was when I went to New York after my 17th birthday, I was so liberated because we could go to the the library, the main library, we could go to the art museum. I mean, it was just a wonderful reawakening for me. And I said, I'm going to come back one day. And so I did go back to teach at this camp. And it was as though it, people didn't care what color you were. Now, I was, the, for the first year, the only black counselor. I did go back a second year, and there was another black counselor. But we were just friends. And that was so liberating. So I knew that it was possible for people to have good relationships and be of different races. And I wanted to see that happen in the South. And I wanted to be part of making it happen. You made a powerful statement early in your teaching career when you took students on a field trip to hear the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Would you please describe that event? Yes, 
I took my fifth, sixth, and seventh graders to the symphony, and at that time, the white students went in the morning and the, the black students or Negro students in the afternoon. When we went, I was aware, because I had been sent a program, that the students would be asked to stand at the beginning and sing a patriotic song. It didn't say which song. And so we went, and we were sitting there in eager anticipation of listening to some beautiful music. And the conductor, who was Henry Sopkin at the time, asked the students to all stand, and we did. And then he began conducting the orchestra. And when I heard that it was Dixie, I told my students to sit down. And they didn't know how to sing it because I had never taught it to them. And they did. And when they sat down, all of the rest of them saw that we had sat, so everybody else sat down. And Henry Sopkin turned around while he was conducting and saw that we had sat. But he continued playing through to the end. But that was my, I guess, silent objection to the song because it was an offensive song then and it is still today. I was teaching my students without being, I guess, obnoxious that this was not something that they should appreciate. And shortly afterwards, my principal brought a box of books that were to supplement the music books that we had that were old to my room and I opened one of them and looked, and at the in, on the front page, in the opening, there was a picture of Piccaninny children picking cotton, and the song that accompanied was Dixie. And I told him we can't use we can't use this with our students. And he asked me, "What do you want to do with them?" And I said, "We'll take them out to the playground, which was just a dirt packed playground, and we'll burn them. We'll burn the whole box." And we did. <sighs> I'm sure that was the only time in your life you wanted to burn books. Of course. <laughs> I love books. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Explain how you were, I'm quoting here, eventually accepted, but not welcome at the University of Georgia. Well, no, I was not accepted. It really got under my skin because the students would sit far away from you in class and not even acknowledge your presence. But in my first class, which was advanced music history, the first test that came up was to be held before the, the 4th of July. But the rest of the students in the class, I wanted to go ahead and get it over with, but they wanted to wait. And so we waited until after the 4th. And I studied and studied. And I really enjoyed answering the questions. It was a an essay test and not a multiple choice. But I had thoroughly immersed myself in the questions and I answered them all. And when the professor returned the papers, he announced the fact that I had the highest grade in the class, which was an A. And the students looked at me. I mean, you see, at that time, I think the prevailing thought was that blacks could not compete academically with whites and that's why schools should not be desegregated. And I wanted to prove that, but now I didn't know, of course, that I was going to get an A or that I would have the only A in class. But it was probably because I studied during the holidays and, and they didn't. But that changed. A lot of them, they would begin to talk with me in class, not outside of class. But that's, that sort of broke down the wall of people just, all of them just ignoring me. Oh. It is painful to read about how you were treated by 
other students, even by some faculty members at UGA, which, again, it just surprised me that you were even accepted. You were granted entrance at UGA, if you will, but you talked about the impact of that riot in 1961 when the undergraduates, Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes, were on campus and students just got ugly and out of hand. And you write that appearances on the national stage trumped the deep prejudices of local men of power for a moment. So that sort of surprised me because I thought about, well, but look at the horrors in Mississippi and Alabama that came in the next two years. And yet here in Georgia, they were willing to relent and grant you acceptance, although not acknowledging your credits from the University of Michigan, which was a much more (laughs) rigorous program. Yes, it was. That was insult to injury. But why do you suppose these bigoted local politicians even cared about the negative national news coverage? Well, you know, the University of Georgia is the oldest land-grant university. They had been severely criticized, even internationally, about the riot. And people don't understand that I was not admitted. It took them five months before they did, before they said I could come. They tried everything they could to keep me out. And so when Charlene and Hamilton entered, it didn't open the doors wide to everybody, not to me. There was an investigative report where they sought to find out if I had shoplifted or had an arrest or had an illegitimate child, just discussing things that I didn't even know about then. And I think it was May 10th of 1961, there was a newspaper article written by Margaret Shannon. I don't know if you remember her, but she wrote this article saying that they held a high-level conference at the state capitol where the officials, and they had to be the legislators and the governor, reluctantly decided that they had to admit Miss Early based on her good teaching record and scholastic record, or that Judge Boodle would order them to admit me and perhaps issue an injunction. They didn't want that to happen because that would, again, bring shame to Georgia. So it wasn't that they wanted me there. I was not welcome. And during the summer of 61, I was the only black student on campus, which meant that any vitriol that they had to throw at a black student was directed toward me. But I did not let that deter me because I was determined that I was going to stay the course because I was self-selected. Nobody asked me to go. I made that decision myself. And yet, with the repeated hurt, students getting up and leaving the table when you sat down in the cafeteria, being called hateful names, you never wore down. I'm amazed at how a young person could have that fortitude. 
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is the answer. I started going to his church and he talked about all of these things. He talked about hate. He talked about love. And I got my strength each week that I went home. I got my strength from him to be able to go back and to take whatever. I mean, the only time I really retaliated was when I was they threw rocks at me going to the post office, and I threw one back. Yes, I love that. <laughs> I love that story. That sounds funny to say, but you please share with us your story about telling Dr. King about that incident. Yes, I went to his church the next weekend, and I said, I have erred. I said, I threw a rock back because they hit me under my glasses, and I was so irate. And I am sorry. And he said, Mary Francis, I would have done the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) I did not believe him. But he was such a personable person. And he was so sincere in his conviction that all men and women could live together in peace. And I believed him. And I still do. Well, and to even joke that he would have done the same and then tell you, well, you're human. It was such gorgeous consolation for your being ashamed of not being nonviolent in your response. Well, I was thinking, I'm not that nonviolent, and I threw the rock back. I didn't hit anybody, but I mean, I was, I was angry, and you know, it was a visceral, well, feeling. I guess I just couldn't resist it, but I know that we should. But even today, I mean, this is the same thing. That's, it seems like we have done, gone full circle and come back to the same kind of thing that happens today with people being killed and uh, assaulted, and it's just wrong. Oh, horrific. The farmer in the dell, the farmer in the dell. Hi-ho, the dairy-o, the farmer in the dell. Farmers of color in this country have been waiting since March of last year for $4 billion in pandemic aid they were promised to make up for decades of discrimination. Yesterday, Agricultural Secretary Tom Vilsack gave up gave an update on where that funding stands. During a speech in Georgia at the American Farm Bureau Convention, Vilsack said, we're filing briefs, we're filing motions, we're doing discovery, we're moving forward so that if something doesn't get worked out in Congress, ultimately judges will make decisions and we'll go from there. The $4 billion in relief have been kept from black farmers after judges sided with white farmers who argued in court that the debt relief program discriminated against them. Joining me now to discuss is founder and president of the National Black Farmers Association, John Boyd. Mr. Boyd, you've been on the show several times. You have not always had favorable things to say about Vilsack. How do you take his comments in Georgia? Well, you know, the, the bottom line, Charles, is, is that uh, the black farmers and farmers of color, we still don't have our money. And uh, as I speak today, uh, there are uh, uh, farmers all over this country who are receiving farm foreclosure and demand notices. So instead of getting the actual debt relief that we were eligible for, they're getting uh, notices in the mail that they have to make the payments. Uh, that their farm is going to be put up for foreclosure. And that's what we've been fighting against the whole time. And uh, what we didn't hear from the secretary is holding white farmers accountable for suing black farmers in 12 separate complaints 
and 12 uh, uh, courts around the country that the National Black Farmers Association has filed amicus briefs in all of those cases. So we're out here uh, uh, leading this fight and uh, trying to raise money to uh, defend this case in, in, in court and to make sure that our voices are heard. And what's being left out of these complaints are the history uh, of discrimination that black farmers have faced, uh, from slavery to Jim Crow, to uh, uh, being able to buy land after the, the Civil War, and the, the government stole millions of acres from, from black farmers. We're fighting to make sure that those things make it into uh, uh, the documents and, and federal court in this country. And uh, people need to know, we don't want a handout. We want the same as white farmers have been getting uh, for, for uh, hundreds of years in this country. It's black farmers who didn't get debt relief, and it's white farmers who have been getting debt relief this whole time. That's what my 30-year campaign was about, uh, trying to get this bill passed, and we finally got it passed. And as I sit here and speak to you, and, and we spoke a number of times about this, we still don't have the money. And that's been the story of the black farmer in this country. So I was reading through some of Bill Sachs' statements. I didn't read the whole speech, but I read I read some clips of it. And it, it you know, instead of addressing straight head on that what was black farmers had faced was racism, uh, oppression, uh, isolation, discrimination, he was using terms of art like adverse circumstances, whatever. Has that been your experience of dealing with him? It felt to me like he was trying not to offend the other people he was speaking to by forthrightly saying that this was, there was racial oppression that led to these inequities and we have to address those before we address anything else. Well, uh, and what I've been saying the whole time is Secretary Vilsack has to address this, uh, the issue of black farmers and discrimination head on. And uh, you really can't play footsie with uh, white farmers in this country. Uh, large-scale white farmers who have, who have been getting the whole time. Uh, if you're going to address discrimination, you have to take it on head-on, and uh, you can't give it window dressing. Uh, you know, someone is spitting on you and calling you racial epithets and only uh, uh, seeing black farmers a certain day of the week. People, it is, what is it what it is. It's discrimination. It's wrong. And the only way to fix it in this country is to address it head-on. Now, we have to address uh, why these white farmers are suing well, uh, separate complaints in this country and why they are stopping uh, payments uh, and relief to needy black farmers, deserving black farmers who have been waiting for this relief for decades, people. This isn't a new request by black farmers. It isn't reparations. Right. It's debt that we're eligible for. We should have been right. getting it the whole time. I should have been getting it while my white counterparts right. in Mecklenburg County, Virginia, were getting uh, a debt relief myself and other uh, black farmers in this county that I live in, we're not getting it. And I'm using myself as an example right. because I know it happened. John Boyd, thank you so much for joining us as always. And we will keep track of this and stay on this story. Uh, hopefully this works itself out. White supremacy is a sickness. Inauguration Day, January 2009. President Barack Obama is sworn in as the first black president of the United States. 1.8 million jammed the plaza to witness the monumental moment. Even the frigid 28 degrees didn't dampen the attendees' excitement. Their pride and hope were on full display.
The live TV audience watched as the new president and his wife, Michelle Obama, rode in the inaugural motorcade down Pennsylvania Avenue. Close to the end of the one-mile stretch, the two got out of the car for a short walk, following a tradition first started in 1977 by President Jimmy Carter. I watched as they confidently strode down the street, headed to the White House, waving to the enthusiastic crowd, and tried to push down a wave of fear I knew was shared by millions of African Americans. He was out in the open, a ready target for someone who might try to kill him. I later learned there were many who literally screamed at the TV, Get back in the car! Get back in the car! Recently, cell phone videos of African Americans brutally beaten or killed have revealed to the rest of America what black folks already knew. Too many of us have been witnesses or victims of racial violence. In fact, some African Americans said they would not vote for him because they were afraid then-Senator Obama would be a bigger target if he were to win the presidency. If they could kill Martin Luther King and get away with it, some wondered out loud, why should Obama be any different? The FBI documented a record number of threats to President Obama and his family, more than any other new president. I thought about all of this when Rachel Rollins, newly confirmed by the Senate as Massachusetts U.S. attorney, asked for federal security and was turned down. The former Suffolk County District Attorney, scheduled to be sworn in today, barely survived a bruising confirmation process during which her professional reputation and character were attacked. The ongoing threats she frequently received at the DA's office became more violent, Death threats like the email which read, Someone somewhere is plotting to put one in your face or head. Rollins turned over the emails to the U.S. Marshals Service. According to the Boston Globe, the Marshals investigated and deemed the threats low risk. Rollins, who will be the first black Massachusetts U.S. attorney, pointed out on GBH's Greater Boston, A lot of people don't realize, as a woman, particularly a woman of color, a black woman, the level of racist, hate-filled death threats that we receive. The U.S. Marshals do not provide protection to federal officials unless they assess the threat to be serious. However, former President Trump's Education Secretary, Betsy DeVos, who is white, did receive protection after she was jeered during a middle school visit. Facts are, on Inauguration Day, President Obama's security detail was on alert because of a credible death threat. And facts are, Rachel Rollins is not exaggerating about the credible threats against her. As is so often the case when the issue is race-related, lived experience brings a unique perspective not always valued. Call it a kind of bitter irony. Rollins starts her new job today, charged with protecting Massachusetts citizens by prosecuting violations of federal laws, including cases of terrorism and civil rights abuse, even as her own request for protection remains unfulfilled. Callie Crossley, GBH, Boston's local NPR. The Turner Diaries sold over half a million copies. Who do you think is buying it? Eric Rudolph, the Olympic bomber. Wade Page, who shut up the Sikh temple. Larry Ford, developing typhoid and cholera. William Carr, with the cyanide bomb. Anthrax, ricin, botulism, C4, IEDs. I could go on like this for hours, and all of them are white supremacists.
Growing threats from violent extremist groups have triggered new action from the Justice Department. Officials say they'll now create a domestic terrorism unit following outrage from many Democrats. They accuse the FBI of failing to address these issues, which they say led to the January 6th attack. The Justice Department made the announcement during a Senate hearing where Republicans fired back, highlighting police brutality protests that swept the nation in 2020. For more on this, let's bring in CBS News senior investigative correspondent Catherine Herridge. She's following the hearing in Washington. Hi there, Catherine. So tell us specifically a bit more about this. How is this new unit going to work? Elaine, this new unit will be a consolidation of the investigations done by nearly 100 U.S. attorneys, as well as the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Forces. They do the legwork in these cases. So it's about consolidation. It's about greater coordination. As the witnesses testified, the threat from domestic violent extremism remains elevated and is growing among specific groups. They cited anti-government, anti-authority, as well as groups that are motivated by racial animus. And it's in that latter group that they see the most potential for lethal attacks as well as mass casualty attacks. But to be clear, they're talking about extremism, not just on the right, but also on the left here in the United States. Well, so you touched on a bit of it there, but more than mm -hmm. 700 people have been arrested mm -hmm. and charged over their involvement mm -hmm. in the deadly January 6th insurrection. How do those numbers break down and what do they tell us about domestic violent extremism more broadly? The Democratic chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Senator Durbin, reached for some independent data and pressed the Justice Department and FBI witnesses on the fact that he said about 90 percent of the individuals involved in January 6th were either acting alone or in a very small group or cell. They didn't have an affiliation with these known extremist groups or militias, and he urged the witnesses to make sure their strategy is one that not only looks at what I'll call these traditional extremist groups, but also what it is that's driving individual Americans to take violent actions, Elaine. So if that's the case, Catherine, because mm -hmm. I think so many people are sort of searching for answers when mm -hmm. you learn a bit more about those who have been arrested and charged, that it is mm -hmm. sort of a, a, a broad swath, uh, if you will, of, mm -hmm. of citizens. What do both this hearing and the January 6th mm -hmm. cases actually tell us about radicalization? I've been working in this national security space, Elaine, for two decades, and what I've heard consistently from my context, current and former government officials and intelligence officials, is that the mechanism we saw at play with ISIS and al-Qaeda that radicalized American citizens right here inside the United States is very much a carbon copy of what we're seeing with the radicalization of individuals on the extreme left and also on the extreme right. The FBI witness testified today that they see lone actors, small groups or small cells, congregate. It creates that kind of echo chamber where their extreme ideas are amplified, and this helps them cross that threshold to violence. And the FBI witness said that they then seek accessible weapons, and they go after soft targets. If you just rewind a decade, that is the very description that the same kind of officials used when they testified about the growing number of Americans who were joining al-Qaeda 
or ISIS to carry out attacks inside this country. So it's this digital yeah. radicalization that we first saw with, I'll say, international terrorism, and now we're seeing with extremes on both the left and then also on the right. That's right. We move it to Mississippi, and you know how that's spelled. M I crooked letter, crooked letter I, crooked letter, crooked letter I, hook back, hook back I. <laughs> As of 2020, about 30% of families in the U.S. headed by black mothers lived in poverty. That's more than two and a half times the national rate. In Jackson, Mississippi, a guaranteed income program is trying to help black mothers lift themselves out of poverty. Guaranteed income provides people with a stipend, usually between $500 and $1,000 a month, with no strings attached. Some praise it as an economic lifeline, and others criticize it as an expensive handout. News on Weekend's Zachary Green, who's been covering guaranteed income programs for the past year, visited Jackson to learn more about the program, which is also the subject of a new documentary that premiered last month called Inherent Good. This story is part of our ongoing series, Chasing the Dream, Poverty, Opportunity, and Justice in America. Since 2013, Aisha Yandoro's nonprofit organization, Springboard to Opportunities, has worked to help families in Jackson, Mississippi, living in subsidized housing. The women that we work with, on average, make $11,000 annually, and it's working full-time. We're doing everything from after-school programs, workforce development and training programs, um, food pantries on site, healthcare clinics on site in a couple of our communities. It really was about economic mobility and thriving. But in 2017, she had a problem. Yandoro feared that the group's efforts weren't having enough of an effect on the lives of poor families in Jackson. We were not seeing a successful transition out of affordable housing. We were not moving the needle on poverty. And the reason that that mattered to us is because so many of our families, when they talk, when we ask them what it is that you want for yourself or your family, what are your goals, they talk about home ownership. They talk about living in market rate housing. And we were seeing that we weren't actually helping families achieve those goals. Yandoro asked the families directly what they thought was missing. Our families told us myriad of stories, but Every story that we heard could be addressed with cash. And I pulled together a round table of moms and I just said, okay, just help me dream about what this could potentially be. The discussion that followed led to the creation of the Magnolia Mothers Trust, the first privately run guaranteed income program in the country. The program launched in 2018 with $300,000 in funding from the nonprofit Economic Security Project and a private donor. It distributed $1,000 a month for one year to 20 working black mothers living in subsidized housing. The recipients, chosen by lottery, were free to use the money in whatever way they saw fit. One of the first was 31-year-old Kajina Brown, a mother of three who was then working part-time as a supermarket cashier. I was pregnant at the time, and um, I kept passing out of work because I had vertigo, and um, I couldn't work anymore. So I was like, okay, well, this came just in time. Brown used the extra $1,000 a month to pay for essentials, as well as take time off to be with her kids. I got a new bed. I got uh, my car fixed, just clothes for the kids. I took my kids on trips. We went to the zoo. We went out to eat. The money also helped her move to a larger apartment for her growing family and raise her credit score by making and paying off credit card purchases. In addition, Magnolia Mothers Trust provided her with counseling on topics like home ownership. At the time, I didn't know credit was that important. Like, I knew a little things about credit and what we need to make to get a house in Jackson, like little simple things. But, you know, they were taught us a lot. 
Magnolia Mothers Trust is now serving its third group of guaranteed income recipients. So you said you started with 20 moms in the first cohort. How many moms are in the current cohort that you're serving? 100. 100 moms. Last year we had 110. Next year we'll have at least 100. Mm. So it's like we started from the bottom, now we're here. <laughs> it feels really good. The program is now fully funded by private donors from around the country. One of the current recipients is Ashley Dawson, a 30-year-old mother of five who works as a campus enforcement officer at Chastain Middle School in Jackson. She found out she had been chosen for the program in an email last April. And I just couldn't believe it. I might have read it probably 10 times <laughs> just to make sure that I was seeing what I thought I'd seen. But, you know, because things like this just don't come about too quick, too often. Dawson began receiving the $1,000 a month in the midst of a trying year in which she separated from her children's father and her sister was killed in a shooting. You know, sometimes you can kind of lose insight when you go through a couple of things in life. Something as simple as your worthiness or um, if you matter, you know, when someone do something good, you know, when you get a chance to be a part of something good, you know, it just picks you up, you know, and it helps you remember who you are and what really matters. Dawson says that she's used the extra income to pay for family holiday expenses as well as some unexpected car repairs. She's also saving money to move her family to a bigger home and to go back to college and finish her degree in social work. She hopes to have a career in education or start an organization to help young people deal with challenges similar to those she herself faced. I want to get an organization set up um, that will be designed for teenagers once they graduate school, preferably females, to help them have somewhere to go, to stay. They don't have nowhere to go, and um, they will provide them somewhere to stay and help them get on their feet. Since Magnolia Mothers Trust began three years ago, several of its former participants have been able to purchase homes or move into market-rate rental properties. Aisha Yandoro says that the program is proof of the beneficial effects of a guaranteed income. When you give people money without restrictions, they go about taking care of what it is that they need for themselves and their families. We've seen moms get out of debt. We've seen individuals go back to school, finish school, get better jobs, go see family members for the first time in years because they actually have disposable income now. What do you see as the future for Magnolia Mothers Trust? Do you see this as something that could become a permanent fixture, something that could grow to involve more people, maybe in places outside of Jackson. Yeah, I don't want Magnolia Mothers Trust to be permanent. I feel like that would be a failure if it is permanent. I don't think that any of the guaranteed income projects that are currently um, being implemented in this country can be sustained without federal policy. I think they're all important. I think that we are all providing critical narrative and data and conversations um, that were needed to help push this country forward and to really help us divorce this ideal of cash with restrictions. But if Magnolia Mothers Trust or any of the guaranteed income programs are still occurring five years from now, I will feel like we've missed the mark and a massive opportunity. So for me, I am pushing for policy and demonstrating what is possible on the federal level. Mama says police misshoot black people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true? Is it true? And Michigan State Police promising action tonight after an independent study they commissioned found racial and ethnic disparities when it comes to traffic stops made in our state. Today they were joined by community partners to dive into the numbers and present their plan on how to curb them. This will be a groundbreaking study that will not only help MSP moving forward, but will help inform 
and guide other agencies across the United States that are looking for innovative ways to address racial disparities. In 2017, Michigan State Police modified its reporting system to record the race of drivers during traffic stops. Fast forward three years, and the department identified potential disparities through its own internal data. And in September 2020, asked Michigan State University to do a study, the results of which were released Wednesday. It found across Michigan, African Americans were significantly more likely to be involved in a traffic stop, and that Hispanic and Asian drivers were less likely to be stopped. They say the report also found African-American and Hispanic drivers were more likely than whites to be searched or arrested after traffic stops, while Asian drivers were less likely to be searched or arrested, but more likely to get a ticket. These findings demand immediate action. The department's five-point response plan includes hiring an independent consulting firm to review MSP's policies, making more data available to troopers through a dashboard, providing real-time traffic stop data, ramping up educational opportunities for troopers and recruits, and issuing body cameras to all law enforcement members who may have contact with the community. These tools will offer a real-time, unbiased record of what happens anytime an MSP enforcement member interacts with the public. The cameras will also enhance safety for both the officer and the public. They also plan to launch a statewide listening and engagement effort with the Bridges to Blue Citizen Advisory Council. It was established with various community members in 2020 to provide outside perspective on how state police conducts itself. Forward to working with the department to ensure that we're moving aggressively throughout Michigan's communities to hear uh, from the community, to hear the reactions. Uh, to hear the solutions. I think it's important to understand um, that we're not resting on a reputation, we're building one. People of Michigan deserve unbiased policing, transparency, and accountability. State police say they also plan to review their stops made in 2021 to continue to build toward more solutions. We posted more about that study at fox17online.com. I heard y'all ain't hitting in New York. Word. Word. I heard y'all ain't hitting in L.A. Word. 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 I heard y'all ain't hitting in North Carolina. North Carolina. Another fatal police shooting occurred last weekend. Another fatal shooting involving a white officer and a black man. 37-year-old Jason Walker was shot and killed in Fayetteville by an off-duty Cumberland County Sheriff's deputy. Deputy Jeffrey Hash says in a 911 call that Walker jumped on his truck, pulled off his windshield wipers, and beat his window. A witness says Walker did not jump on the truck. The deputy is on paid leave. Walker's family, meanwhile, is mourning while searching for answers. That includes Walker's cousin, Charlotte artist D'Angelo Dia. He's been involved in protests in Charlotte for other shootings. He never dreamed he'd be dealing with a police shooting from this perspective. He spoke to WFAE's Sarah D'Elia. Sitting in the Goodyear art space at Camp North End, 45-year-old D'Angelo Dia takes a deep breath and gets ready to do something that feels unreal to do, discuss the shooting of his cousin. Dia is assistant to the senior pastor at St. Paul Baptist Church and an artist. He recalls watching video that has circulated on social media, which shows a woman attempting to give aid to his cousin. There certainly are multiple narratives 
out there, which makes it difficult for my family to start the healing process. Not that when we have clarity on it that, you know, everything is just going to be, you know, magically better. Um, I don't insinuate that at all. But to start the process, it feels like a step back once you see the video. And then to start the process of healing again, it feels like another step back when there's so many confusing narratives that are floating out there. I do hope and pray for the narratives to get some clarity. I think it would be important for my family. I know that you are a person of faith. How have you leaned on your faith in the last week? That's a good question. It's really hard. I had someone yesterday, I spoke at an event yesterday at the Gantt Center, and I shared you know, transparently, I'm mourning and grieving, you know, the loss of my, you know, the taking away of my cousin. And in regards to leaning on my faith, you know, that someone had said to me, well, you gained an angel. And I was somewhat offended by that because um, my thought was I'd rather have my cousin. I'm struggling with the faith part, to be you know, transparent with you. The execution of black and brown people seems like it's a norm in America now, um, a norm globally you know, to take their lives. I think faith without application is pointless. So for those that are praying, I'm thankful that they're praying. Um, but I also hope that they're applying um, pressure to our legislators um, to put in common sense gun laws, put pressure on the legislators that there will be more accountability and mandate on our law enforcement officers and those that train them. Um, I think there are things that could have been put in place and my cousin could have possibly still been here. So you were very instrumental in some of the, the protests and the, the response that went through Charlotte in the wake of George Floyd's murder in 2020. You know, before you were kind of, I imagine, a little bit on the outside and now you, you cannot help but be on the inside. This is your family. How are you feeling and thinking as, as you reflect on that? Yeah, I, I think any space that there are oppressed individuals, I feel a calling. You know, I, you always ask me about my faith. You know, when individuals ask, where is God? I often think, you know, where are you in proximity to pain? With the situation with George Floyd, I felt it was important, you know, for me as clergy to be in proximity as close as I could be to the pain. Being on the outside of the issue with Keith Lamont Scott and um, Jonathan Farrell here in Charlotte and just being a participant, it was important. It was significant. Now, because my proximity is like impacted in a different way, I'm already consciously thinking about what it means for me to be a black man in such a divisive and triggering society. As an educator, I'm constantly thinking about that, that for the students of color that I've been able to, to educate and nurture and spend time with. But now that it has an impact on my family in a different way, it cuts deeper and is much more personal. Um, there are things maybe I didn't think about before. For example, like the, the chokehold that was used on Eric Garner, I wouldn't have thought about that hole even being an illegal hole had we not had that situation. I'm not sure how many shots were fired you know, with Breonna Taylor, but now it'll constantly ring with me that it was four shots fired with my cousin. I don't know if Deontay Wright had anyone there with him in his last minutes, but it'll constantly ring with me, you know, the thankfulness that there was someone there to be with my cousin during his last minutes. And I'll also think about when law enforcement show up, you know, are they immediately responding? I don't say this to say that this is the gospel or this is truth. I even worry about the idea of when Officer Hash made a call, they say it was a 911 call. But I wonder if his initial call was to his supervisor or to someone else. I can't assume best intentions anymore. I don't want to be on the train of trauma as a sense of sparking a movement all the time, but that feels like all we have right now.
It feels like our trauma and our pain is the only thing that will get attention in these moments. And I don't think my pain or the pain of my family has to be the only thing that like sparks common sense and consciousness for individuals, but it often feels that way. I know that you're a poet. Is there any piece of poetry that you, like religion, are leaning on right now or anything that you've written that has helped process this difficult week? That's a good question, too. Um, I do turn to my writing for processing. Um, right now, to be honest, like my writing is heavy. Um, it's more angry writing um, than holistic writing. If there was any, you know, scripture or hymn or anything, um, there's a hymn that's called On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. I love the ground is sinking sand. I do turn to that, but I'll be honest with you, right now in these moments, those, when a poem or when a hymn can make me feel good, is so fleeting so quick. And that's the difference also I would say with the killings outside of my personal family. There's a poem called The Test of a Man and If um, and Invictus that I say those poems, at least one of them every day. Before with the killings that took place, I could say one of those poems, I could sing a hymn or listen to a hymn, I could go do a piece of visual art, and I would feel better for a little longer. Right now, the feeling is fleeting so quick. I don't know if it's possible to, to maintain joy the same way after something like this. Even the idea of celebrating, you know, we call in, in my faith tradition, we call it a homegoing service versus a funeral or a celebration of life. I don't know how much of a celebration of life this will be. Normally, a celebration of life means that someone lived a long life. Um, there are individuals that use things. I think about when George Floyd's life was taken, people say, you know, he's a martyr for the, the cause. Most people that are martyrs choose to be. They know what they're going into. They know the fires that they're attempting to face. None of those individuals prior to my cousin Jason chose to have their lives taken. They didn't choose to be martyrs, and Jason certainly didn't either. Jason was only 37. Uh, that's a lot of life still to live. And we come from a family of longevity. We have centennials in our, in our family. And now to not have him be a part of that legacy, um, he is a part of our legacy. I, I don't want to dismiss that, you know, what he contributed in the 37 years that he was here. But he should have been here longer. And I will be processing that for the rest of my life. I was a mechanic, right? I used to work like a fucking dog, night and day. I had a wife, and I had a newborn kid. We lived in a fucked up part of town. That's where poor people live. I was like the manager of this building. That's the only way I could stay there for free. I had to work around the place, you know what I'm saying? The place was should have been fucking condemned. I used to go to the city all the time and told them they had to get shit together place wasn't safe. They didn't give a fuck. They don't give a fuck about people who live in the ghetto. I told my girl I was going to get around to it, you know. The place was a fire trap. So one day I come home late and I see this commotion out in the street. And I'm looking and I notice this ain't where I live, but at the same time, it was my building. But I'm saying it's not my building. But it was. I ran inside. By the time I got in there, my wife and kids was dead. 
could have. Officials have now released the names of the 17 people who died in Sunday's deadly fire in the 19-story apartment building in the Bronx. They range in age from 2 to 50 years old. Some came from the same families. All of them died from smoke inhalation. Many were immigrants from West Africa uh, and part of the local Muslim community. A nearby mosque and the Gambian Youth Organization are gathering support for families of the dead and the survivors. Investigators say Sunday's fire began when an electric space heater malfunctioned. The victims suffered from severe smoke inhalation after a pair of open doors allowed smoke to spread throughout the building. The building acted as a kind of chimney. City records show tenants of the Twin Parks Tower had complained about a lack of heat in the building and doors that didn't close automatically, as required by law. The building did not have fire escapes or sprinklers, and many people were trapped in upper floors, where self-closing doors were supposed to have blocked toxic smoke and flames from spreading. The new New York City mayor, Eric Adams, spoke outside the Bronx building Monday. And if we take one message from this that Commissioner Nigro has mentioned several times, close the door, close the door. That was embedded in my head as a child watching the commercials over and over again. We're going to double down on that message. My conversation with the chancellor uh, this morning, uh, we're going to send out communications to all of our schools and state that we want our children to receive the same level of reinforcement. Muscle memory is everything. And if we can drill that in, uh, we can save lives by closing the doors, not only in the City, but across the entire globe. This painful moment can turn into a purposeful moment as we send the right message of something simple as closing the door. Housing activists say the real responsibility for saving lives lies with city agencies like Housing Preservation and Development, or HPD, that are charged with enforcing building safety codes. Democracy Now! spoke with the director of CASA—that's Community Action for Safe Apartments—Pablo Estupnian on Tuesday. As an organizer in the Southwest Bronx for the last eight years and working with thousands of tenants over countless buildings um, who have all experienced these uh, issues as well as not having heat or getting repairs, being harassed, living without gas, I have to say that I'm really shocked and astonished that the city leadership would blame tenants, that they would say that fire doors, closing the doors is enough and that people shouldn't have had space heaters. Um, that that kind of response neglects any responsibility or accountability on city agencies like HPD or the Department of Buildings, DOB, on, and their lack of code enforcement. Um, so, you know, our experience is that tenants will go in buildings living with these conditions or lack of heat for months, for years on end, and there's any, there's never any meaningful action taken by the city. The only time that we the times that we are successful in getting landlords to change the conditions of their buildings often comes through legal action, through tenants organizing together and filing 
joint group housing park cases and housing court to get repairs. And even after a judge's order, um, we have seen buildings where HPD will still refuse to come in and make repairs or hold the landlord accountable. That's CASA Director Pablo Estupinian. The building where Sunday's fire took place is owned by an investment group whose co-founder, Rick Ropper, served on Mayor Eric Adams' transition team as a housing advisor. For more, we're joined by reporter Claudia Irizarry-Ponte, who covers the Bronx for the New York-based outlet The City and has been closely following that story. Her latest article's headline, Self-Closing Door Law Failed to Save Bronx Fire Victims and Deadly Bronx Blaze Prompts Scrutiny of Open Door That Spread Smoke. We welcome you to Democracy Now! And by the way, congratulations on the announcement that you've just received the Ida B. Wells Award, honoring exceptional coverage of communities of color from the News Women's Club of New York. And I think I think that goes directly to your superb reporting on this issue. Uh, we hear the mayor and the governor, we hear them talking about the space heater. Well, why was it so cold that space heaters were needed? And tenants leaving open, open doors. They're supposed to be automatically closing. Is that not right, Claudia? Talk about what you found. That's right, Amy and Huang. Good morning, and thank you for, for having me. So there are two, there are two things that um, may have contributed to the fire. Of course, there's the issue of the malfunctioning space heater and the fact that the door um, of the apartment where the fire originated on the third and second floor duplex apartment did not close properly, allowing for the smoke to spread um, more quickly. Um, but of course, that begs the question of why these tenants were using a space heater in the first place and why the building was not warm enough. Certainly from the tenants that I have spoken with, I've been on the site um, every day since Sunday. That is a top question on these tenants' minds. You know, I have heard from tenants who say that you, I have heard from multiple tenants who say that they also use space heaters because they did not find that their apartments were warm enough. Um, that they they claim that their windows were not insulated, and on very cold days, they would actually get frost on the interior part of of their windows. Um, of course, this is a not an old building by New York City uh, infrastructure standards. It's about 50 years old. It was built in the 1970s, in fact, as a model of affordable housing in the city, receiving federal and state funds to subsidize um, housing. Um, but certainly in a lot of these buildings, you know, tenants are not able to control the temperature in their own apartments. They don't have thermostats. That is all up to the building management. And for a lot of these tenants, many of whom are seniors, children, multi-generational families living within the same household, you know, they had to resort to using ovens to stay warm. They had to resort to using space heaters to stay warm. And unfortunately, you know, when these um, tools malfunction, you get um, fires like the one we saw on Sunday. So a lot of the tenants that I have spoken to, in fact, all of them, um, you know, are really asking for accountability, not just from the state and city agencies, but um, first and foremost from, from their landlord and the building owners. And Claudia, th this whole issue of uh, obviously the this building did not have fire escapes uh, or sprinklers because supposedly these more modern, uh, re relatively as you say, modern uh, buildings are supposed to be to some extent fireproof uh, and uh, and have at least double staircases for uh, uh, for uh, exiting in case uh, fires occur. And what's your sense? Because uh, most of the people died not uh, of smoke inhalation. Could you talk about uh, what caused the deaths? So, uh, Fire Commissioner Daniel Nigro said that, unfortunately, most of the victims did die from smoke inhalation. Um, 
We don't know much detail about where um, exactly the victims were found. Um, all we do know is that in terms of the people who um, are in fact still injured, and to use uh, Commissioner Nigro's own words, um, fighting for their lives in city hospitals, um, did suffer injuries from smoke inhalation from the people who, who have died so far. Also, the majority of them from smoke inhalation were found in, um, in, in, city, in the apartment um, hallways and stairwells. Um, one can imagine that it's because they were trying to escape, and unfortunately, the smoke was too dense. Um, I have heard that as well from um, tenants who managed to escape or were rescued um, by firefighters, that the smoke became too dense and they couldn't see. I spoke to an elderly man who actually passed out from smoke. Fortunately, he was okay when I spoke to him on Sunday at the gathering um, place for for tenants. Um, it, he tried to escape and it triggered an asthma attack. He passed out, but he was in good spirits um, and okay when I spoke to him on Sunday night. Um, and of course, so the building does not have the like the the fire escapes that you generally see, like in brownstones or in like five story buildings across New York that run on the outside of the building. Uh, fire officials did say that there are um, stairwells, interior stair stairwells for um, tenants to escape from in case of emergency. Um, but, you know, it, it, the issue is that, you know, the, the door, the apartment that was on fire did not close properly as required by law. Uh, that allowed the smoke to spread quickly and create, um, as Amy said, this like chimney effect throughout that entire area of the building all the way to the top floor, the 19th floor. And unfortunately, that um, caused a lot of the injury and death that we saw with this with this um, with this fire. And what can you tell us about the uh, the uh, owner, this uh, Rick Ropper, and uh, how many buildings does does he or his uh, uh, his investment group own across the city? And has he uh, made public statements as well? So, Kimber Property Group, which is one of the um, co-owners of of this building, and to keep in mind that the, there's a consortium of property managers and um, affordable housing providers. Uh, that took ownership of this building about two years ago. Uh, this building also receives funding through the state Mitchell Lama housing program, which subsidizes um, affordable apartments as well as Section 8 housing, which is, of course, the federal um, housing program. Um, and so Canberra Property Group is a, a, a affordable um, housing provider in the city. Uh, they own or manage well over 100 buildings in New York. Um, they also um, have contracts um, for the public private um, ownership or management program with NYCHA, New York City Public Housing, called the RAD program. Um, they, they operate several um, public housing buildings in the Bronx and across the city uh, through that program. And so Rip Gropper is the founder of Canberra Property Group. He is also, as he mentioned, uh, a part of um, Mayor Eric Adams' um, transitional team, um, you know, um, advising him on housing. It is unclear, uh, at least to this reporter, um, to the extent of like how he advised the mayor um, on on housing, uh, whether the, the mayor is still liaising with him or, or, or you know, talking with him about uh, that issue specifically. Obviously, they are um, in contact right now uh, responding to, to this fire. Um, but it really does beg the question, especially when you hear of the mayor in his public response, speaking over and over again, you know, I heard a ton of tenants say that they're, they've been actually quite disappointed with the mayor's messaging, you know, speaking rightfully so about the importance of closing the door behind you and to be careful with the use of space heaters, 
But of course, many tenants feel, well, we wouldn't be using the space heaters if the building was warm enough. And, you know, the door didn't close properly as required by law. Well, the city agencies and the landlord should have made sure that um, the doors closed properly. Um, so certainly, um, you know, a lot of frustration and anger from a lot of tenants and certainly even some housing advocates and frankly, um, New Yorkers um, who have been responding to and reading about um, this issue. Claudia, in addition, um, some of the survivors were talking about how they didn't initially try to get out, because so many times there were false alarms. They were used to these alarms going off on a regular basis. And that also takes us to Philadelphia, where 12 people died last Wednesday, including nine children. In Philadelphia's deadliest fire in over a century, the blaze killing three adult sisters, nine of their children, occurring in a row house owned by Philadelphia Housing Authority. Authorities now say 14 people were inside the building when the fire began, that none of the building's four smoke detectors went off when it started. Investigators believing the fire began when a five-year-old accidentally lit a Christmas tree on fire. Um, so this issue and the number of people now who lose their homes, what happens to them? especially as um, you have this latest development yesterday, protesters blocking the steps of the New York State Capitol in Albany, demanding Governor Kathy Hochul extend the eviction moratorium, which expires, ironically, on Friday. That's January 15th. Uh, January 15th is Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. This is Tenants and Neighbors Executive Director Genesis Aquino. The eviction moratorium ends on uh, January 15th. The significance of this and what happens to these people? Right, that's absolutely right. Certainly, um, housing issues and tenants' rights are front of mind um, for New Yorkers right now, with both of these issues um, just happening at the same time. Well, um, as you said, there were activists yesterday at this Albany State Capitol, um, you know, sitting in and fighting for the good cause eviction bill which would, you know, grant relief to some tenants um, when the eviction moratorium expires on the 15th. Um, as far as the tenants um, in this Bronx building, you know, they are in for a very long, painful road ahead of them. Unfortunately, fires in New York are not at all uncommon, especially in communities like the Bronx. Um, I have covered several other residential fires. From my experience, it has taken tenants up to a year to find stable permanent housing again, especially in the case of tenants um, like the ones at the Twin Parks building who have Section 8 vouchers and, of, of course, um, um, require placement in other Section 8 properties, which, as we know, are few and far between. Um, as far as what's next in the short term for these tenants, um, their um, building owner, their landlord, is actually paying them to stay in hotels um, for the next two weeks. Um, several city agencies, uh, housing advocates, 
um, and and even um, some attorneys, some some public defenders are helping them um, not only um, gather a case uh, potentially against their landlord, but also helping them find housing and being placed in either Section 8 housing or any other affordable housing in the um, in the interim. Unfortunately, after the two weeks um, of them saying the hotel expires. Uh, those who have, do not have an apartment to stay in, whether by themselves or with their families, um, have been offered to stay in city homeless shelters, which, of course, has been um, very concerning for many of the tenants that I have spoken with. They're very scared of going to a homeless shelter um, with COVID cases um, on the rise across New York City. Um, so, again, they're all in for a very long, beautiful road ahead of them. For their part, um, Congressman Richie Torres, a Democrat who represents the neighborhood, said that he is going to do everything in his power to make sure that... Um, those residents who have Section 8 vouchers um, are located in similar Section 8 housing as quickly as possible, as well as other city lawmakers have made well, the same promise. We want to thank you so much for being with us. Also, uh, the Bronx Tower owners um, have been hit with a $3 billion class action lawsuit over this fire that killed 17 people. Claudia Irazi, uh, Irazari Papante, I thank you so much for being with us, reporter covering the Bronx for the New York-based outlet, The City context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, January 15, 2022. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in. Uh, dial in if you have thoughts, observations to share. The number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Not for spectators. Number again, 720 Seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, before we get started to the callers, uh, we have a full slate uh, context of white supremacy starting two o two two being active, hopefully active and constructive. Uh, so. We will be here tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, for the Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Always uh, look forward to trying to speak to non-white people who are in different parts of the world uh, to see how they're responding to COVID-19. They just had a report, I believe it was at NPR, they said within the next two months, about half of the population of Europe will be infected with COVID-19. No idea what that will mean, how they'll respond to all of that. Uh, might just, you know, they get a call for what have you and keep rolling. But we will see how folks are responding in that part of the world. Uh, I think this, yeah, be our first time checking in with them this uh, so-called new year. But that'll be tomorrow. Uh, we'll try to take advantage. Also, we'll talk about the situation with Prince Andrew. White people do not care about children. That is worldwide. But we'll talk about that, too. So that's tomorrow. Again, 12 noon pacific where i am 3 p.m eastern sunday 
We will also be here. Now, I am a little disgruntled about this because this is a switcheroo from the normal routine. We've had a book club here at the Cows for a decade. Book club has been locked every Thursday for a long time. Uh, I think more than five years at this point. We're doing a switch just for this week because white guests only. There is a white man, journalist in Texas. He wrote this report just a few weeks back talking about how he was turning into a racist at age four. But this black female who I guess was taking care of him at the age of four, she helped him to not be a racist. And I said, man, we have got to talk to this fella. So. He agreed to be a guest on the program, but the only days where he has free time that coincide with our normal broadcast time, which is 8 p.m. Eastern, Thursday and Friday, which we already have programs most of those days. So we had to do our switch just for this week. I'm very disgruntled about it, but, you know, at minimum programs on Wednesday and Thursday. So Wednesday of this week, the 19th, will be the book club. Alice Seabold, Lucky, we're at such an important part of the book because they're at the trial, so we get to hear all this nonsense uh, about the identification of Anthony Broadwater and the misidentification where she didn't even pick him in the lineup and all their lame racist excuses for how that came to be, why she made a wrong choice with the other Negroes. All of that will be coming up. uh, This, Oh, my God, and there's other... (laughs) book club for Wednesday. I forgot. I haven't read this book yet, but I saw other people and they talked about some of the things that happened at the end of the book. Rick James, super freak riding with us all the way through to the end. So book club Wednesday, Wednesday, just for this week, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific Thursday, as opposed to the book club, white man will be coming on the program. Normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And we will discuss how in the world were you becoming a racist at four? deep in the heart of texas that'll be thursday so a little bit of a switch uh but mostly same time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific just the major the book club this week will not be on thursday it will be on wednesday so be mindful you're following keeping up with alice seabold wednesday this week have your notes and such ready to roll for wednesday of this week next uh, many notes to share uh, for this week. I guess one quick that I will share. We did not necessarily hear a news report about this one. I did post it on Twitter at until justice on Twitter at until justice. Let's see the post in Virginia. Somewhat sad day. So Ralph Northam stepping down no longer going to be governor of Virginia will not be able to get any more of my coon man remarks in for the state of Virginia unfortunately brand new governor uh, and they have a brand new lieutenant governor as well it was Justin Fairfax black male victim of white supremacy racism who was accused of all kinds of sexual misconduct remember that they wanted him to step down and probably is still uh, going after him with all these allegations so now the lieutenant governor in Virginia, black female, victim of racism, white supremacy, Winsome Sears, sworn in today, has a photograph of her holding an assault rifle. 
And I said, my goodness, and, and, and she just did a report this week where she was quoted as saying, we need to get over slavery. Victims guaranteed qualified. I have no idea what that means. Slavery is still ongoing, racism, white supremacy. But again, victims guaranteed qualified. The question I asked was, if you are a lieutenant governor, whom are you going to shoot with an assault rifle? I didn't even know that that was part of the job. And I'm trying to imagine if Justin Fairfax could be elected or any other black person and have them come out with an assault rifle, how white people would respond to that. But that is another matter. Let's see. Uh, to the reports that we heard, uh, it probably will not be included in the archive, but just at the beginning, like before we actually went live with the compensatory call in, I played a segment on uh, they were talking about Maceo Snipes, black male who was shot. Black male veteran uh, who was shot and killed uh, just for attempting to vote murdered, really. And they talked about in the clip Maceo Snipes, his name. They talked about in the clip uh, that he uh, motivated Dr. Martin Luther King, inspired him to be courageous and go out. And he was a teen at the time, they said. Uh, I thought that was important because they said. They didn't talk about in Maceo Snipes family. They did not talk about him. They were threatened. Did you hear in the clip said that the race soldiers came by and left a note. They said anybody comes and is preaching about him and tries to do the same thing. You will not be alive come sundown. Right. Say something about him if you want to. And the same thing will happen to you. All that threatening. Right. Standard operating procedure for racists. That's a big part of counter racism to talk about racism, particularly talk to your children. But I mean, even imagine that to have a family member, a veteran be killed by race soldiers for trying to vote. And then you can't even tell the relatives about this guy who should be looked at as a hero. We should have all kinds of pictures and monuments, you know, bravery and all the rest of it. Can't even talk about him. That is terrorism. Within all of that, I was so disgusted. I think Henry in Chicago, he mentioned last week, I used to love uh, Unsolved Mysteries, right? Since syndication been on for many, 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 many years. He brought it back uh, a couple years ago. I had never heard about the case of Alonzo Brooks, black male killed in Kansas, probably went to a sundown town. They said uh, Lacine, the town where he went to and was killed. I think the population of white people, something like 95 percent white got to be a sundown town just by definition anyway so they had that on unsolved mysteries i appreciated his uh non-white mother indicting the white children who took her child an hour away from his residence to go to lacine probable sundown town we need a better term for that area of racist aggression uh for him to be killed and they didn't even find his body for like a month. Nobody charged. This happened like 20 years ago or something. Long time. Bob was on Unsolved Mysteries. But I appreciated the fact that she indicted the white children. Like, hey, what are you doing taking my child an hour away from his house? And then you don't even bring him back. You don't even know what happened to him. Come on. Anywho, I said, man, Unsolved Mysteries, as opposed to stories about aliens and weird lights and little green creatures and lost loves and all this other goofiness that they talk about on there frequently, they could have filled up about 20 seasons with racism, white supremacy. They got a whole 90 minute episode on could someone have escaped from Alcatraz and all this nonsense, man, 
Dr. King's assassination, Malcolm X assassination, Emmett Till, and was Carolyn uh, Bryant Donham, was she involved and should she, in- I mean, it would be an endless list. The Moore's Ford Bridge lynching, World War II veterans right there too, and some reports that it could have been a pregnant black female that's disputed but either way black two black males two black females and they were world war ii veterans they were killed and nobody was charged they, i mean that could be seasons worth even going back with some of these cases and identifying the white people that were in these pictures nah they won't talk about you know amelia Earhart, the bottle that floated around the world lost loves all of that stuff would be way more important to Gus T if we were not in a system of white supremacy racism next uh, they had the segment on how COVID-19 the pandemic has disrupted how uh, black people grieve and the whole death process which has been the case for everybody on the planet over the past year I thought it was significant within that segment this is two weeks in a row that I'm calling out the profanity on public radio NPR specifically uh, the guest was Stephen Kemp, uh, black male uh, mortician. Uh, and he was talking about how things have changed and all that, more cremations. Uh, and he was talking about how you have so many more younger non-white people, black people specifically, who do not attend church on a regular basis. So they haven't been to church. Now that it's time to have a funeral, it's like, well, this person hasn't really been to church. And he said, you haven't uh, stepped a foot in a damn church in your life excuse my language and I just thought like wow you're a mortician like you're accustomed to doing services that are affiliated with a church and that sort of thing and I just one it's kind of unusual to hear people curse on public radio that's one two this is just black people like I just think it's very easy to get casual and to have even mild contempt for black people like so what really in my opinion I'm not someone who's, you know, I'm not going to be in for communion tomorrow morning either. I didn't ring in the new year with service, but I wouldn't care if it's a non-white person. They haven't been in church all their life. If they want to do that, fine. If you want to share with them that there are other options that you'd like to maybe consider since everything has been upended. If you want to maybe think about doing something that's a little more casual and a little bit more in line with, you know, how that person lived their life or what have you, what their values were, if that means going out and listening to Tupac and having your box lunch at the park and that sort of thing, great. But I mean, if they want to, you know, just stick with all that and do the church thing, if the family's more, whatever, cool in the gang. But just, I think it's so easy. I just, it's difficult for me to imagine if Mr. Kemp had been talking about anybody but black people. These Asian people haven't stepped a foot in the church in their damn life. I don't think that, I just have a, I haven't heard that. I'll just put it that way. I don't hear that. I could be totally wrong, but anti-blackness is massive in how we think about, talk to, relate to black people. Next. Incidentally, I thought in that, even when they talked about the mortician business, I think that's one like barbershops and what have you. White people generally have shown that they are not interested in burying Negras. They had whole laws against allowing black people to be buried uh, in the same cemetery, even with white people. That's in two towns of Jasper about James Byrd Jr. Where they said, man, James Byrd Jr. I don't even know if he could be buried in the cemetery. Oh, they took they took his body and dumped it in the Negra cemetery after they decapitated him and dragged him behind the truck. That was a part of it. Two towns of Jasper. Great documentary. Uh, 
but white people are not interested in burying Negras and or we'll take that corpse off of your hands. We got all kinds of experiments. Ooh, yeah, give give old cousin Ned to us. We'll take care of the arrangements. So you can take your pick. That's why black morticians were allowed to flourish. No other reason. System of white supremacy, racism. As I said, same with uh, barbers and what have you. If race soldiers wanted to do that, you wouldn't have black morticians. Just following the logic. Next. Uh, I did think it was interesting. He said that uh, they would have some of the clandestine meetings at the funeral home, black funeral homes. Again, uh, I just submit in the system of white supremacy, you're probably not going to have very much clandestine activity at all with regards to non-white people and I think Cointelpro uh, can show you better than I can tell you and or other electronic devices and all kinds of means to infiltrate. Next uh, they talked about Mary Frances Early uh, in her segment uh, The Quiet Warrior she so-called integrated University of Georgia I did hear a little bit of white validation, at least in my view, in the segment where they were talking about her going north and she went to New York and she came back to Georgia, came back to the so-called South because she wanted to be a part of having those relationships where everybody could just get along uh, and there not be a problem with color. She wanted to have that in the South. That wasn't the case in New York at the time. I mean, my goodness, could have talked to Minister Malcolm X about that or any number of folks, Adam Clayton Powell. And they would have said, I mean, it might look a little different than it does in Georgia or Alabama or wherever else, but white supremacy, racism, oh yeah. They were having all those fires in New York at that time. Black people dying and such up there. Chicago, other areas. Anywho, uh, we heard if the cows were about to do our 13, it'll be 13 years of us. I guess that is an anniversary. 13 year anniversary if we make it to February 21. Uh, if there is a theme song for the cows, it is for sure the slowed down like religion of white supremacy version of Dixie. I don't think there's one song that has been played more frequently on the cows over the years uh, than Dixie uh, played more often, more frequently sometimes than at others. But I mean, you can go way all the way, way, way back uh, in the archives. And I mean, like to 2009 and you will hear Dixie playing uh, in the background. So I was so tickled uh, when she talked about going to the Fox theater where I have gone uh, to hear the Atlanta uh, symphony and they cranked up Dixie. Uh, I don't know if they did the fast version or the slow version, but right on for choosing to sit down. And then they sent the books with the picking any in it afterwards. Woo. Georgia national champs. Uh, let's see. Next. Uh, uh, uh. And even I'll point that out just a quick contrast because Mary Frances Early, black female, she was talking about her autobiography. If you just want a quick contrast, that's what I've been saying about Alice Siebel's work the whole time, uh, where she is constantly talking about violent retribution for the abuse that she suffered, slicing off balls, testicles, slicing off your penis, slicing out your eyeballs. Her dad, even the section we read this week, talking about chopping off your hands and everything like, man, says she went to court and had written on her pale skin. You will die. Talking about Anthony Broadwater, black male. All of this said, I hate him. I've never hated someone. You can tell all of this violent vengeance that is not allowed. In fact, you heard it in the interview. They talked to uh, Mary Francis early and it was isn't that amazing? Your parents didn't teach you to hate. 
Isn't that you just wanted to change things and not be about hate? And you wanted to, in fact, go to New York and get along with white people. See, it's got to be with black people, victims of white supremacy. Oh, and I mean, every time it has got to be forgiveness, reconciliation, turn the other cheek. White people can be angry, rage, violently angry, even violent vengeance, even that's not allowed for black people, victims of racism. Next, uh, they had the segment on the black farmers uh, being cheated. They talked to John Boyd, uh, victim of racism, white supremacy. That segment was on uh, BNC, the black news channel. The journalist was Charles Blow, uh, who self-identifies as bisexual. Uh, in that segment, this is the second time uh, the Black News Channel and Charles Blow specifically. I played the report uh, a few weeks back when the American Psychological uh, Psychology Association, when they offered their lame apology for their practice of racism, white supremacy over the decades, Dr. Welsing included. When Mr. Blow discussed that segment, Victims Guaranteed qualified, but he said, I'm sure that we all appreciate their apology. No, we do not. Uh, Gus T, I can put my hand up immediately and I am certain there are other non-white people, maybe even some individuals classified as white, but definitely some cows listeners who know why I'm not appreciative of the apology. If you're going to do something to compensate, to repair the damages that you've contributed to and caused great but just you oh we're so sorry no i'm not appreciative of that that does not mean anything uh to me and why are you speaking for everyone mr blow came back this week he was talking to the farmers who've been cheated for like centuries really depends on how long you want to talk about this but i mean long time like forever uh they've been mistreated in all kinds of ways you can even add shirley sherrard to that when she was with the Obama administration, remember that? I think that was 2010. My memory's all right. Uh, but Mr. Blow ended the segment saying, we hope it will work itself out. What in the world? I don't even know what that means. Work itself out? Why would I have any thought process if I know the whole history of what John Boyd's career has been about? The whole history of black farmers in this part of the world, it has not worked itself out. Why would I even say that? We'll continue to follow this. We'll check back up on this. Everybody eats, so we definitely got to check on the farmers. B and C will check back on this. Any number of phrases would have been better than hopefully it'll work itself out. Guess we could blame the Obama campaign for that one. Got us with that hope uh, rhetoric. Hope is not a plan. Uh, let's see. Next. Does anybody here like in Vogue? The phrase uh, men of color, males of color, non-whites of color. Does anybody hear that phrase? I do not. The catchphrase that I hear is women of color. We heard it a bunch this week. Women of color, women of color, women of color. Sometimes they'll just say women or women of color. I am not a fan of that at all. I feel like that's just another one uh, of using that feminism, white feminism, racist white sexism using all of these ideologies to just further uh, cause confusion uh, in the way that we think about racism white supremacy when they were talking about Rachel Rollins uh, and her new role first I think they said non-white person period first black person period male or female uh, attorney general in Massachusetts if my memory is correct 
Uh, and they said that she's being mistreated because she's a woman of color. That is not true. Especially if we're including in that segment uh, President Obama, it is non-white people and particularly black elected officials. And this is the second time I'm pointing this out. I don't hear segments where they say male elected officials, males of color or non-white, none of those. That's why I sound it so peculiar. I've never heard that phrase. But I certainly know a lot of black male elected officials who've been mistreated, victims of white supremacy. We can even bump uh, Mr. Clyburn to the side for a minute and take, or excuse me, President Obama. We take uh, Representative Clyburn, one of the victims of January 6th. I talked about Mayor Lucas forever uh, and saying how they were talking about lynching him because of the COVID-19 restrictions. It's non-white people, period, if you're an elected official, especially a black elected official. You are going to be mistreated, period. Not women of color. Like I said, we heard that a few times. I will come back to that one later. Um, Actually, I could come back to it right now because I would classify all of that. The black misandry, that was a major theme that I noted out this week. Now, the report we went to next in Mississippi, the Magnolia Mothers Trust awesome program i'm so glad help out some victims of racism black mothers specifically they talked about some of the awesome things they were able to do ashley dawson one of the black moms talking about having disposable income they can go visit family and improve their credit score and all these spectacular things awesome awesome do more of it uh, and they said we don't even want this to be a permanent program so we can you know help these people do on they can move on and do great things in their life improve their quality of life like exponentially spectacular that gets I even before I could even follow with that it was what happened to the males did they not have black guys in Mississippi what happened to the debt you can't get like a dads of the delta program if it's got to be some kind of alliteration we can't do that we can't get a program that helps everybody it's just got to be focused on black females I'm totally with supporting black females I'm just saying dang like it wouldn't be beneficial to take care of everybody and doesn't this seem eerily familiar like when we talked about the 1960s julia i think it is we can set up programs take care of the black female and the children but that nigger hit the road jack isn't that the song have we not made any more progress even i have that pointed out like dang we can't come up with programs that take care of the holistic attempted black family we can't do that it's just got to be black moms and if the black males are so down and out and downtrodden and shiftless and worthless well then dang we really need the program to get their act together right no worthless no count black male there you go okay uh let's see i had a second i didn't even play it they had a piece in portland it was the exact opposite trying to make an environment where black males can thrive in portland and all of the obstacles uh to that i didn't even play it uh because they didn't have a program in place for them. They were just talking about why it's so hard to do that. Total opposite. Uh, let's see. They had the segment, the shooting in North Carolina. That's, you know, par for the chorus. Another week, another shooting. Uh, the segment in Michigan where they talked about the uh, black people specifically. That was one I didn't hear black and brown. I didn't hear women of color. It was black people. And that's one I'm going to suspect with the police because it's always disproportionately black males. I didn't even hear that there. 
can't even be accurate about the data that they come out with. Not that I'm surprised. That's about what I would expect in Michigan or Minnesota or Washington State or anywhere else in the known universe, that that is who is supposed to be getting stopped, the Negras, by design. It's not an accident. Uh, the Grenfell Tower fire, uh, I will include the segment that led into that. Uh, Ice-T. I just mentioned the movie Surviving the Game. We had the segment last week. We were talking about the uh, immigrant from Jamaica. Uh, he went on a hunting trip with his white buddies and was killed. Can't even figure out what happened. I mentioned uh, Surviving the Game. I said, man, they make movies about that. Taking black people out in the woods, tricking them, tricking them and taking them out in the woods and killing them. Hunting, literally hunting and killing them. That's the movie, Hunting the, uh, Surviving the Game. The Great Ice Tea. Uh... The Grenfell Tower fire, I totally forgot Ice-T's character in the movie Surviving the Game, 1994. I can't believe it's almost been 30 years. They used to play that movie every day back when I watched basketball. I guess in syndication, they played it every time. Anytime uh, Kobe Bryant, the great Kobe Bryant would play, it would be Ice-T, Surviving the Game afterwards. Anyway, I totally forgot that the plot of the movie, he's a homeless black male, duh, worthless, uh, and he is homeless because you don't find out until halfway in the story after they're hunting him. He was in a fire trap. Manager. He went down and fussed at them. Hey, you got to fix this. You got to do something about it. It's unsafe. This building should be condemned. And they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. Who was the day? The usual suspects. And then the building catches on fire. His wife and children die and he blames himself. And that's how, you know, his life spirals out of control. And then he's going to be hunted and killed by white people for the final coup de gras but surviving the game again all black people non-white people born uh they said in so-called west africa but all non-white people and they come up with all these lame excuses uh, oh man they had to use the space heater because you know we don't want to spend all that money or they have their low-income housing so we don't have all this great central heat and all the rest of you you can't even investigate doors that close like that is so basic it is 2022 and they have drones that can deliver toilet paper, like 80 rolls of toilet paper in one sitting and all these other gadgets, the self-driving cars and everything. You can't get a door where the hinges work properly to close in 2022. That is a total disgrace and then they have this happen like right as they have the black mayor like <laughs> gets in office and bueno, have that one I thought they were just fussing at him about helping black people like man can't, can't seem like I'm trying to do too much to help these fire victims out here totally and we talked about this bunches of times because this is regular not just with the Grenfell Tower fire 2017 in England we had Esther Stanford Cosse on the program they had way more fatalities but exact same type of thing we talked about this even closer not the Philadelphia incident that happened just earlier this year uh, but in Chicago as well we talked about this Beryl, uh, Beryl Satter white woman uh, family property her book she talked about this was endemic in Chicago Every other week, just what I said before, every other week, got these niggers piled up in these unsafe dwellings. 30 black people die all in one setting. Standard operating procedure. Total disgrace again, why there should be uh, a sense of urgency about solving this problem.
Uh, I will pause there. Uh, just say, before we get to the callers, this broadcast, uh, one program I request if we could not use metaphors. Uh, race soldiers will use a lot of them. The movement, I don't know what that is. Where are we going? Be specific. They'll use lots of metaphors to cause confusion so that people are not really getting an accurate uh unambiguous grasp of what we mean when we say racism or when these topics are being discussed victims myself included we are still learning sometimes we will use a metaphor or analogy to substitute for logic as i said we're still learning frequently these substitutions just cause more confusion if we could make every effort to be direct precise exact with our word choice that would be super appreciated I will give reminders uh, about the metaphors. Thank you kindly. If you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, observations, questions, suggestions, that would be grand. Uh, if you have additional thoughts, uh, if you can let everyone get at least one chance to share, uh, and then I will come back uh, after everyone's spoken once and see if you have additional thoughts, observations to share with us. Uh, let's see. Number again is 720 300 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh let's see first few folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary to share line should be open proceed hello yeah we heard irie in louisiana yes ma'am Salutations, Gus et al. Um, I want to say quickly, um, there's a documentary of sorts on YouTube when they were talking about um, high-priced, um, high-rise uh, units, apartments, condos, whatever, I don't know, um, in the millions that are being subsidized um, by New York City because of some kind of, it's some kind of, uh, legalese in the um, with, when they build these buildings and um, I, I, I just can't remember I j I'm just thinking of it because it's, it's fraud, waste and abuse uh, uh, across multiple um, perspectives with this fire situation and I'm wondering if there are no um, sprinklers in this building because it's considered fireproof I know that um, most of the high-rise buildings and skyscrapers are so, supposed to be so modern, the ones that's being built and the ones that have been built in recent, um, in the past 10 years even. Do they not have sprinklers? Are they considered fireproof? I would like to know. Um, it's, it, it, that's messed up. Um, I haven't been asphyxiated by smoke. I've been... I've done training where I had to wear a gas mask and had to take it off. And that was one of the worst feelings in the world, um, not being able to breathe at all um, and dying like, like so disturbing. Rest in peace to those people. And I'm glad to hear that there's a class action. I just hope that there's true justice because it's always the attorneys that get the bulk. Um so there was something else. I was listening to workplace racism yesterday, and um, it was funny because there's a caller that is, a, I think, a paraprofessional or 
something equivalent, and she was saying stuff and reminding me of when I was substituting when you go in a building, you have a badge. I mean, you can have a blaring lanyard, and most of the time when I was going to schools, they would make it like a bright color, and it would say the school's thing, and it would have like your some type of identification, letting people know you're there for the day, or uh, just something to let people know you've been given access. And you get questions like, can I help you? Or you get, or I get questions like, who are you today? Like, not my name, you know, to even just be nice. Like, oh, okay, what's your name? And, oh, what class are you in? Like, who are you today? Um, and I guess that may be a metaphor in itself, but, um, I don't, I don't really miss that. Um, especially, being in situations where I was switched around class to class uh, without notice just about which, you know, caused things to happen where I no longer teach anyway. But um, there was uh, one other thing about workplace racism that I want to mention, but I had to get off the line when people ask salary. Um, it's really ironic that white people will ask how much you make, but they won't inform non-white people how much um, um, a position or a, uh, what do you call it, um, promotion should pay. And I think about a friend of mine that worked for some type of mortgage bro uh, brokerage, and he had been doing some double duties uh, his job and the job that he was going to be promoted to, which I think they were doing that to um, just get extra work out of him. And um, I said, okay, when he described it, I said, okay, that sounds like that makes a lot of money. He was like, it's okay. It makes about 40000 That's what they told me. I said, they told you 40000 And I said, let's check. So I went to um, census.gov and I went to I plugged in uh, like the labor or something, some kind of way I went from the census and I might've jumped to department of labor or within the census to labor statistics. And I put in his description and that job had a median income of $85,000. And I said to him, I said, you do what you want to do, but I would be a negotiating somebody. They are playing you cheaply to the max if you take this 40000 before taxes. And that just, I, that made me angry. It made me angry. And white people need to know somewhere along the way that if you're in a workplace with them, that they still have the advantage of making more money than you, um, even if you're a superior to them. They do not want to know <laughs> that you live in good. They don't want to know that you have a piano, especially if they ain't got a piano. That's a metaphor and a movie reference, but it is what it is. I know y'all get it. And I'll leave my line. Thank you. Hold tap and have a good night. Much obliged, uh, Irie in Louisiana. I think we are still unanimous. We did not have one person who has dialed in since now two days since we've been talking about this on neutralizing workplace racism. We've yet to have one person say, wait a minute, Gus. I shared my salary and it was outstanding. I got so much help. Folks wanted to make sure that I got a raise, was taken care of, extra benefit. Not one 
person, even the people who said that they shared their salary with the other non-white people they worked with. It caused problems. They were mistreated every time. No sharing of salary. And as she said, you can just see the lying. White people don't come out. Transparency, they call it. Tell you what they make. The lying. Oh, I think it's about 40,000. Yeah, yeah, about, about 40,000. If anything, that just further illustrates, I've said this for years, research. If you're going for a job or what have you, put in your time. Whip out that phone, your tablet, or, you know, whatever. Do some sleuthing online and try to find as much information as you can about the company, the position, salary, everything, so that you'll be more informed. I mean, wow, 40,000. And then you go look, 85,000. Some people are probably making a little bit more than that. Like, my gosh. Woo. Trying to make sure you never get that piano. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with commentary to share, star 6 1. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings, callers and listeners. Um, Basically, one of the main things I got was the uh, Sidney Poitier segment. It kind of, uh, especially in regards to the movie that he made and the segment in the movie was specifically cut out with him slapping the white man. Um, and I think it's indicative of kind of the same culture or the same tactic that's used here, which is a lot of images of us um, retaliating physically against white people in a in a very tense racial scene tends to be cut out of most movies. Um, they, they tend to make sure they sanitize it. And I hope that's, I don't think that's a metaphor, but I think that's literally what they do. They try to clean it up so that that image is not portrayed at all. And it's interesting that that same concept and tactic is used on the continent as well. Um, also, um, the segment with the black fathers is, is really a tough one as well. It called my attention as well for, you know, questioning really can we sustain ourselves as a separate entity? That's one of the questions I've really had for maybe some of the other callers as well as yourself, because is it possible for us to really sustain ourselves without, you know, interference from these outside entities while we're on a system of racism, white supremacy? I just don't see... You know, a lot of people I've heard come up with that and say that that's what we need to do. But I just don't see how that's possible when they control so many of all the resources. Um, that's something I want to throw out there. Also, the, the black man that was interviewing him um, made a very good point about the speaker that was addressing the black farmer, stating that he went out of his way to avoid saying that he's dealing with racism, white supremacy, he used all these other terms, these other, even used other analogies, I believe, to try to avoid saying that this is a racist thing and you're being dealt, uh, uh, um, you know, you're being treated, mistreated and subjugated. Um, so I thought that was interesting that he brought that up. Um, and also, there was a, it was a good thing for the uh, Magnolia mothers. I, I'm definitely glad to hear about that. Um, that was one of the positives that I, I have to actually have to take as far as news that I've heard this whole entire week, to be blunt. Um, so that was a great thing to hear. Hopefully they're successful, reach their goals, and they're successful going forth, and especially in this new year. Um, the segment about families, 
the, the families in the Bronx. Um, uh, it was just, uh, it was, it was pretty sad. Uh, living in the Northeast, I obviously did hear about that. And, you know, again, this goes back to one of the things I spoke about a week prior about people that are non-white stating that Eric Adams is so pro-black that he would, um, I don't know what they thought he would do because I, I didn't get any accurate answers from them on that. And that's where they stopped speaking uh, when I asked the question what specifically he would do. But um, again, he's, he's, in a, he's in a tough position and I, I already understand what exactly is going on there. But, um, but to the, um, to Irie, you made a good point about the actual program that was going, that's going on in the Northeast in New York city. There's a book on it by a Matthew Sauls. It's called Icebergs, Zombies, and the Ultra-Thin, Architecture, Capitalism in the 21st Century. Um, it's an interesting book that deals with some of the laws and regulations that have been done because it's not just here. It's actually happening, happening globally in situations like happen, that happened in New York City. Um, and also just an article uh, that was put out about... Um, Blacks, black people trying to get into the medical field and how difficult it's been for them to become doctors based on finances. Um, and it's something that's obviously been ongoing and, and, and is still a problem. And especially with um, rates of co people going to college dropping right now, um, it's probably even more difficult. But um, it's just a, a few thoughts for the mind and in regards to that. Um, thank you for your time and energy. Appreciate it. Much obliged, good sir. Uh, they have lots of deliberate strategies to make sure we do not have black doctors. And then they'll come around and say, oh, man, why don't we have more black people in STEM? And we need black scientists and whether it's finances, lots of different means of making sure we do not have black doctors. Uh, let's see. Much in the segment where they removed the scene of Sidney Poitier uh, striking the racist uh, counterviolence, as Mr. Fuller would say, once again, as I said, Alice Ebo, they were going to make Lucky a movie. We could have been watching that this year, talking about castrating a black male, chopping off his penis, cutting out his eyes. Oh, yeah, they were going to. I don't know if they were going to edit that or not. I doubt it. That poem is pivotal. Sidney Poitier smacking a white fellow. Oh, no. We got to cut that out. Can't, can't have that in. Can't even make a film. Nat Turner took all that time to make it. I said this last week, and then we finally make it. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't he rape a white woman 15 years ago? Oh, my God. We can't go see a film like that. Raping people and such. Oh, my Lord. Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, mine should be open. May I be heard? Uh, caller 44, four, or wait a minute, 4797. Yes, sir. Yes, good evening to Gus, the host, uh, the participants of the program, or everyone is having uh, a good evening and staying warm. Um, in New York City right now, it is about... 13 or 14 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, it is very cold outside, and as a result, many people resort to 
other than the natural heating or the uh, the, the heating that is um, maintained for the buildings or the apartments uh, to keeping themselves warm. Um, many people I've heard uh, attempt to blame one of the victims for the fire in the Bronx uh, that it spread to multiple uh, apartments or uh, rooms because the person left out of the, uh, the apartment and did not fully close the door. Um, I would just say that in a panic where there's a fire raging, many people will um, just leave the scene as quickly as possible. Uh, so it would be very difficult to uh, fully blame the uh, victim in that case. Um, in addition to that, living in New York City, there are many uh, buildings, homes uh, that have unregulated apartment built apartments for people to live in, meaning that they are not legal um, for people to rent, uh, such as basement apartments where many people um, get injured either by cold because there is not enough heat coming into that particular apartment. It may be very drafty. Um, there are some times when it rains uh, very substantially, and many people in those unregulated apartments get flooded out completely. So there is uh, much work that the, uh, the white people who are in charge could do to make sure that people are safe where they live from either fire or uh, water or extreme cold. Um, I personally have known someone who has uh, uh, passed away who has died as a result of uh, carbon monoxide poisoning in their home because they did not have adequate carbon monoxide testers where they lived. Um, I myself have uh, fire extinguishers in the place where I reside and uh, I check the uh, carbon monoxide uh, detector frequently to make sure it is uh, at least has the batteries in it. <clears throat> and I also uh, inspect the, uh, the smoke detector uh, for the place where I reside. Um, and also I wanted to mention I don't uh, personally celebrate my birthday, but um, I know that many people do celebrate birthdays, uh, and I wouldn't celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, birthday necessarily, but I will acknowledge that he was a person that I believe has evidence of uh, engaging in counter-racist activity, and uh, that's all I wanted to share. Um, have a good evening. I'll meet my life. Much obliged, sir. Uh, I do not celebrate birthdays either, but certainly I don't think there's anything incorrect about taking a moment to recognize a victim of white supremacy who tried to use the time and energy that they were allotted to solve this problem. That is uh, correct use of time and energy, I think, and try to see if you can learn anything that can be used that he uh, did that was constructive. I don't remember Dr. King doing too much name calling. I don't think they have videos of him, you know, calling Minister Malcolm McCoon or that type of thing. So no name calling. That's one. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, 
commentary to share. Proceed. Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, I have uh, three reports. Uh, number one, the uh, founder. Uh, I, I believe he's a founder of the uh, the organization that is called the Proud Boys. Uh, I uh, saw the report of him being released from jail, and uh, I thought it was uh, fascinating that he had a, a uh, T-shirt on that had the iconic image of Minister Malcolm X, uh, the iconic picture that he took with the uh, the M1 carbine with the two clips, the two uh, bullet clips uh, taped together uh, at his, uh, inside of his house, looking out the window uh, with the attempt to protect himself and his family uh, while he was being interviewed. Uh, uh, that he had that image on his T-shirt. I thought it was interesting. Uh, as he was the uh, founder of the Proud Boys, as he was leaving from uh, the jail uh, facility that he was uh, in for about, I think, uh, what it was, something like four months, something like that, I think. But anyway, uh I was somewhat involved in an incident a couple of days ago. Uh, my offspring called me uh, because uh, uh, the tire on the uh, on the small pickup truck, Gus, you rode in it before. Uh, uh, the tire had blown, and uh, he, along with a friend of his, was unable to. Uh, take the tire off because of the uh, lock uh, was uh, the, the, the lock that you would use to uh, take the lugs off uh, was malfunctioning. Uh, so anyway, uh, I, it was in a southern part of Miami-Dade County, so I drove from the northern part of Miami-Dade County, which I'm located at, down to the southern part, uh, something like a maybe a 25, 30-minute drive. Uh, got there right in time to where as they were engaged in a, uh, I wouldn't say an argument at that particular point in time, but it was rising. This white male was uh, referring something that didn't make any sense. Uh, to them, they were outside. It was something like uh, maybe uh, 12 midnight, something like that. 12 midnight. Uh, my offspring and uh, his uh, one of his college buddies. They had just finished. Uh, they had earlier were working out, and uh, when the when the tire uh, busted, uh, the classmate had a car of his own, but he chose to stay with. Uh, my offspring, uh, and uh, when I got there, it started heightening the discussion. This 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 crazy conversation. This white male 
was bringing up uh, when the friend of my son stated to me that he observed that this white person had a gun. I immediately dialed 911 on my phone. Uh, uh, I don't carry a firearm uh, anymore. Uh, maybe I may need to start back, but anyway, uh, so I immediately dialed 911, uh, and he ended up leaving. Uh, so that kind of like, uh, got through that particular situation. Uh, but, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, it was a white male. Uh, anyway, uh, on the last situation, I'll talk a little bit about the fire that took place, uh, I think early in the week or last week. Uh, first of all, it is not, it is, it is not, and I use the term natural for, for people to be placed in artificial facilities in close proximity with one another on top of one another. Uh, even in what they call modern buildings, the only thing that has to take place is something along the, on the terms that is designed for your safety for such an unnatural environment breaks down, especially where places where non-white people are forced to stay. It's not a matter of whether or not something is bad is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. That's all. The retired firefighter has been in such buildings and had to step over a dead person. Uh, it takes seconds for a person to die for com from carbon monoxide poisoning. Most cases when people die in fires, they don't die from the fire consuming them. They die from the smoke. And like I said, that can occur in seconds. Doesn't take long at all. Uh, I'm even uncomfortable when I go to a hotel. Uh, <laughs> I go about the bees like like I'm working, and uh, find a means for escape, quick escape if something bad happens. But especially in an environment where non-white people are forced to stay, more than likely the safety equipment is not going to be kept up not going to be kept up. People do make mistakes. People are not very seriously aware of how quickly you can be, your life can be in jeopardy within seconds. Matter of fact, I didn't, I didn't realize that um, how close you can come to danger until I got on the fire department. So I know there's a lot of people who do not have that kind of experience. Uh, do not understand on how that takes place. And once that, once that occurs with one person in such a uh, building, uh, it's going to very quickly affect other people as opposed to a more natural means of staying. Even if something, a catastrophe takes place in the house next door to you, it's probably not going to affect you. Uh, but in a high-rise building, it can affect you within less than five minutes. 
in itself. So that is, like I said, it's, it's, a, it's an accident waiting to happen in a lot of cases. So uh, anybody who is forced to stay in such an environment, uh, you know, do the best that you can. That's the only thing I think can be said. Do the best you can as far as safety. Uh, always think, try to figure out an escape plan for yourself and others. Uh, and, uh, you know, just do the best you can in that situation. It is a, it's a terrible situation, especially during this time of year. The worst time of year uh, is, is during the winter months. And in a place, place like New York and Chicago, it's even difficult for uh, the firefighters because, you know, water and cold weather uh, is uh, very complex, very uh, complicated to be able to uh, do their job on a, uh, on a, uh, a top level scale. Uh, water does freeze. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Hmm. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Appreciate the uh, safety recommendations. Uh, we will definitely take them uh, or we will definitely apply them. That way, that's the best way to appreciate. Apply them. Uh, check the equipment check the fire exits and what have you uh if you have an attempted family you all you know live in the same residence you all should have a plan in terms of what to do and safe ways to exit uh what you want everybody to do if there is a fire so you can be more uh prepared in that sort of uh situation but yeah that places where non-white people black people in particular are warehoused you can expect that uh, it's not going to be up to code, and we're talking about the sprinkler system might not work. Fire extinguishers uh, might be empty or all kinds of things. I think they said at this building there's no fire escape uh, supposed to, you know, be fireproof or what have you. So just be aware of that and do the best you can to, to try to minimize the dangers. Uh, I guess with the situation with your son, like, man, before you even got into the details, I was reminded because there was a situation in Florida. It's been many of them, but I think the one recently in Florida where black male car broke down on the side of the road, not reaping, robbing anyone, just waiting for assistance. White man comes up and shoots him like these sort of things happen on a regular basis. Uh, not another motorist where, oh, I'm just here to be a good Samaritan, as they say. And you need a lift. You need me to call AAA. You want me to wait just to make sure you know the plate got my banjo here i can keep you entertained while we wait for the tow truck to come no what seems to be the problem done any raping done any looting got my piss i mean what in the world <laughs> like why is that called? why are you even stopping if you think something is amiss these young folks are up to no good why not just call the authorities he may have been an enforcement official i don't know that's why i said those sort of situations can get so dangerous so quick but glad that you were able to arrive on the spot right in the nick of time as they say uh, I guess he said it was not quite an argument but it seemed like it was escalating and like I said and particularly what have I said all for two years now I've been saying this is not the time for verbal confrontations with strangers what have I followed right. with 
you should be thinking this could be another Kyle Rittenhouse. In fact, might have a whole gang. You don't know who he drove with. You don't know if he's got his, his part. Your, uh, your son had his friend with him. He might have his friends with him too. They got their AR-15, got their uh, two cartridges. They're ready to roll, ready to be violent, and then make up some lame excuse. You know, they were following us, or it looked like, you know, they had insulted someone, or reckless eyeballed a white woman, or anything. So, wow, uh, just glad you were able to get there safely. And, uh, man, just one to, you know, just keep reminding folks, like, it is very damn. And even that reminds me of what I said before. You got all these folks, they said for two years, you got an increase in uh, gun purchases, even amongst non-white people, but more guns. You know, white people got some, too. I said with the pandemic, stress, everything else, people have been talking about racism, people are upset about everything all over the world. You probably have a whole lot of white people. I got an itchy, isn't that the metaphor? I got an itchy trigger finger. I'm looking for a nigger to be stepping out of line so I can do something. I got my brand new pistol. I wish one of y'all would say something. What is that? What are they doing? Let me go invest it. That same sort of attitude. Rife within the system of white supremacy, especially with niggers, because I know if I got to shoot 10, 20 niggers, who cares? Right. He was he was chiding them about something that was just totally irrelevant of why they were at uh, the parking lot of this facility. Uh, they they did the right thing by being by moving the vehicle to this area because it was lighted, and you know Seven Elevens don't ever close, you know that sort of thing. Uh, and then he then he arrives out of the 7-Eleven and was just, just talking way out of, of his, of his mind. It sounds like it to me, something totally irrelevant. I can't even remember what he was talking about, but when my son's friend mentioned that he saw a gun on him, uh, that's when I uh, called 911, the police showed up. And basically, they were asking me on whether or not he presented the weapon, uh, pointed the weapon. That that is a, that is a uh, an offense if you had a weapon and pointed it at somebody. Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and they went about they went about it was two white males enforcement officials. They went about the means of of tracking where I stated where he uh, rode off to, and. Uh, that was the end of that issue. Nobody ever saw the either law enforcement or that person again. And we ended up, you know, fixing the problem. But, uh, yeah. Got to be thinking. <laughs> Absolutely. That is uh, quality uh, attempted parenting right there as well. Like right on. Not, uh, Hey, you're an adult. You got it. Fend for yourself. Let me know when you get home. Because, <laughs> I mean, it could have been a totally different scenario. Because I do know some people, that's how they respond. Like, hey, you know, you're you're over 18. You got it. I, I did, you know, I did my part. I'm going to chill out, watch some more Netflix, and uh, I'll catch you in the morning. Maybe. 
Maybe not. No, parenting parenting is something that you do until the day that you stop breathing or you're incapacitated, whereas you cannot be a parent anymore. <laughs> Especially in a system of racism, white supremacy, if you are attempting to parent a black child, male or female, I absolutely think that has got to be the mentality and that's got to be the mentality before conception going into this is no let's just get through these 18 years and whew, wash our hands and good da, 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 da. system of whites so if that's the case then why have the child to begin with right we just count down till they turn 18 mm-hmm. yes, wow sir. glad uh glad things did not uh turn out differently there like man that is man dangerous time I keep saying it's dangerous I know it you know it could be lost we it's just it's hard to to think you know we're already in danger in a system of white supremacy but I mean like intense danger right now with all the stress they had the se- uh, segment talking about the stress on children and all this and they said they're looking at their parents being stressed that stress is manifest in a lot of different ways and in you know white people just looking to take advantage but I also you have a lot of white people. They do not handle anxiety and stress well. It's been two years of that now. Generally, they take out their frustration on niggers, and they have lots of guns, have bragged about getting more. So this sort of incident, a very dangerous reminder. Thankfully, we had, you know, no violence, and everybody got home safe on, or at least the victims got home safe on this one. But, man, take this sort of incident. This is not an anomaly. This is, you know, pretty much the environment that we've been in. We've had so even Ari in Louisiana was talking about that white couple. They were revving the engine. We're going to looking like they were going to try and hit black mom and her children and then harassed her, too. This is the environment that we got. Don't forget yep. that yep. and pass it to your children. Guess I say that every day. Pass it to your children, especially if they're going out and about. I think Dr. Cambon might say, too, he said this happened close to midnight when he got there. Dr. Cambon has said try to minimize being out too late, like after 10 or so, because that's when a whole lot of these things are like, oh, yes, you you don't have a reason to be out after 10 o'clock if you're a nigger unless you're doing some raping and robbing. So already justified in shooting you. That's pretty much the mentality. But a whole lot of these bad things happen late at night. Uh, was there anything else you were going to add? Or? No, sir. That, that, no, sir. That, that last part is what is what I uh, talk, talk with him about the uh the late late hours there's almost nothing constructive going on you know during certain times and uh that you just have to be aware of that and and govern yourself accordingly you know uh and on top of it one thing about that i've developed over the years is to uh always be suspicious of white people especially uh, not, and, and I mean, it's not just solely white people, but especially white people when they approach, when they approach, approach me or some other non-white person or group, because under global system of racist white supremacy, there's almost no, uh, non-professional instances where they have to. They've made that quite clear. That's it. Not solely white people, but especially white people. Be suspicious. And 
Hey, I have been, I think the metaphor they use, night owl, someone who can keep late hours at times, like after 10 p.m., 11 p.m., that sort of thing. I have done that myself many, many times and even had a cow's listener say, uh, because they would, you know, catch me coming in sometimes at 12 o'clock or whatever. I'd go to the store or some other goofiness that I could have easily done much earlier in the day and say, man, uh, you do all this talking about white supremacy, racism. Like, I don't think that's the best thing to be out super late at night. Like, do you? And then put it back in one more question. I was like, yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. Be mindful about being out late at night. Not the safest choice in a system of white supremacy, racism. Uh, Alonzo, oh, I forgot. Alonzo Brooks, there we go. I mentioned at the top of the program, uh, Unsolved Mysteries, uh, late at night, late at night when he disappeared, died, killed, was murdered in Kansas in a sundown town. It's late at night. Uh, other folks who dialed in with the hand up, if we missed you totally, do you have commentary? Everybody satisfied? Miss anybody? Everybody good? If it's okay, I want to ask a retired firefighter, is there a such thing as a fireproof building? Um, is that factually, uh, is that a factual statement? I'm, 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 I'm chuckling uh, because... Uh, you know, it just it reminds me it reminds me it reminds me of what people said about the Titanic, that it was it was it, it was unsinkable, <laughs> and we know where the Titanic is at right now. Uh, no, I, I don't think there's no such thing as a. Uh, how, how did you address it? Say it again. Uh, um, well, I, I hope I'm not misquoting, but they said that the building was supposed to be fireproof. Yeah, there's, there's no such thing. There's no such thing uh, as something being fireproof. And like I said before, uh, even even with the safety uh, gadgets that are placed in such buildings, uh, the ones that are inhabited by non-white people have already been compromised. Uh, they're either outdated, they're not kept up by the owners. So there, there's your, your problem. And, and by nature itself, it is not designed for people to be in such things where they're stacked on top of one another. They're in such clo- close proximity. You can hear your neighbors arguing, you know, or having sex. You know, uh, that they're so close. That's, that's, that's not, that's not natural to people to be in such, in such, uh, domains, uh, in itself. And then only thing, only thing has to happen, which, which more than likely happens is that the equipment, the so-called safety equipment, it becomes corrupted for various reasons and people make mistakes. That's something natural that people do. They make mistakes based on the technology that they have. That they have. They said a child uh, set fire to a a Christmas tree in one of these uh, incidents. 
Now, my, now, if a child next door to the house that I stay at set fire to a Christmas tree, it wouldn't affect me. You know, so, uh, but in a situation like that building, it definitely would affect people, not only on that, not next to them, on that floor and on multiple floors. And it don't take long. It does not take long at all. Fire have a, have, fire by nature goes upward. Those buildings are made out of hard concrete. Matter of fact, there's another thing that people don't really know too much about unless they're on a job like I was on is radiated heat. Before fire actually gets to you, radiated heat melts stuff. Just the radiated heat. In other words, like putting your hand over a hot stove, sometimes you can feel the heat without the fire even even touching you. You know, and uh, I still have burn marks on my hands from radiated heat. I've had helmets that melted, that melted from radiated heat, not even the fire itself, just the heat between me and that fire. So, you know, people without that safety equipment, you know, shoot. I don't even have to spell it out to you. But hopefully I answered your question. No, you did. Thank you. I, I, I had a feeling. And uh, real quick to the person that was asking if we could survive um, under current conditions. Like I think, like, not sovereignty. I don't think he was saying that if we use sovereignty, but basically just relying on ourselves. I don't think it's possible without the system being eliminated. Thank you. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Yes. Much obliged, Irie, uh, to answer the caller's question on that one, because he said he wanted folks to give their thoughts. Uh, I think that's what white supremacy means. Uh, you dominate all areas of people activity. I have no idea what that would look like anywhere in the world. What type of currency uh, they would have uh, how they would not be dependent on white people and even beyond all that even if you did have this uh, environment uh, sounds like uh, what is it what is that from uh, coming to America the first time around Zamunda even if you get this Zamunda place uh, of make-believe uh, what is to stop Kyle Rittenhouse from getting a drone and bombing or they don't even have to bomb it's 2022 so they could fly and just contaminate the water supply or all kinds of things uh, to Zamunda. I mean, if you were so-called independent, you'd also have to be like able to secure this independent location wherever it is in a known universe. And I definitely do not know any non-white people who are capable of that. So very quick, very simple. No. What does white supremacy mean? Not independent of that. Unless I'm in air. If somebody can find this Zamunda place, man, we can wrap up the cows. We don't even need to do our 13-year anniversary. We can all go to Zamunda and make smoothies, do yoga, and chill. I don't have to talk about all this nonsense anymore. In the meantime, till we get to Zamunda, uh, we nabbed everybody. grand uh much obliged for uh everyone tuning in hope it was worthy of your saturday evening uh now again so the schedule 
We'll be here on Sunday, tomorrow, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Uh, folks from around the world, take advantage, 90 minutes. We will be here on Wednesday. Unfortunately, the book club swapped. It'll be Wednesday this week, not Thursday. So Wednesday, January 19, book club. Alice Bold, Lucky, eight normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Wednesday, just switching for this one time. Thursday, as opposed to the book club, the white man will be on the program. He is a journalist down in Texas. He wrote this piece uh, about becoming racist at four, but black female who worked with him, older woman who I guess took care of him, whatever, black nanny, uh, interrupted that process. We will chat it up on Thursday normal time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific and then we'll be, be we'll be back on our normal schedule the rest of the week so tomorrow 3 p.m eastern 12 noon pacific wednesday 8 p.m thursday 8 p.m check the facebook twitter black talk radio network for other updates for programs minimum you will see us in, I guess, about 12 hours. We will do it up for Sunday, uh, Dr. King holiday weekend. Uh, much obliged for all the folks who tuned in. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Uh, invest if you think the cows is constructive. Listener supported counter racist radio. Visit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot Com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Uh, you'll see the address for Venmo, Cash App, PayPal, Cash App address, cash.app forward slash dollar sign decals. Uh, with that, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We need fully functioning brain computers, new concepts, excellent logic to solve this problem. In addition to being sober, Man, if we didn't get anything, retired firefighters offspring and his pal, if you're going to be out and about, this is not a time for verbal confrontations with strangers. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill or die, there is no point to arguing verbally with some strange white person or strange non-white person. You have no idea. Did this person initiate all of this just so they could get to their firearm? I didn't even leave the house with a firearm. They might have a firearm and an entourage. Planned all this out well in advance. He said uh, the Proud Boys got his Malcolm X t-shirt and everything. Got my attire just for this occasion so I could do some shooting. If you aren't prepared like that, psh. I am out of here. If I can't be out of here, I am in de-escalation, calling the police or whatever I need to do because I am not armed. I did not come to kill or die. If you're in a vehicle, think real carefully about going out late. Gusty does that himself. Uh, in addition, you are sober, buckled up, not on the cell phone. We need all of our attention for obvious reasons in a system of white supremacy. And we are trying to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people 
victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Ah.